Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Robert Irwin, the great anti-sculptor, an artist whose exploration of visual perception was wholly and completely new, whose work fused painting, installation, architecture, and design, and who was one of the most significant original artists of the 20th century, died yesterday. He was 95. Irwin used almost nothing, often only some fabric scrim, to make us perceive or believe that we were seeing more than was there. He made light, be it hard or strong light, or faint reflected light, feel material. I often think of his work in the context of Doug Wheeler, who also uses spare stuff, but to make us perceive or believe that there is nothing there, the opposite of Irwin's way. We have a special show for you today. First up, two conversations with curators with whom Irwin did significant paintings shows in famous brutalist buildings. First, I'll talk with Michael Opping, who as a 20-something curator at the Berkeley Art Museum at the University of California, Berkeley, presented Robert Irwin Matrix 15, an exhibition of four Irwin paintings. Then I'll chat with Evelyn Hankins, who organized what turned out to be Irwin's last major exhibition, a 2016 survey of his transition into perceptual work from the late 1950s to about 1970. After those two segments, you can hear in their entirety Irwin's two appearances on the Modern Art Notes podcast from 2012 and from 2016. But before we get there, a quick note on an unusual week here. There will be two Modern Art Notes podcasts this week because we've got so much good stuff we want to share with you while those exhibitions are on view. These two shows will post a day apart. Today's program will be an Irwin Memorial program. Tomorrow, we will push to podcatchers the show that we had previously planned for today. That show will feature two artists receiving their first museum solo exhibitions, Tammy Nguyen on her show at the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston, and Jamie Holmes, whose work is at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. So check your feeds late tomorrow afternoon Eastern time for that show. couple quick memories of Bob Irwin. I first encountered Bob Irwin because I didn't exactly meet him the first time I encountered him. About 15 or 17 years ago, while I was on an extended visit to the Chinati Foundation in Marfa, Texas, Irwin was there working on what would become Untitled Dawn to Dusk, which would open in 2016, a work that I think took him 17 years to make. As I was at Chinati, I kept seeing a white-haired man drive past me in a battered old truck and wave hello. And finally, it dawned on me to ask a Chinati staffer who it was that kept greeting me while going by. And someone told me it was Bob Irwin. I met Bob a couple years later in 2012 when he and I taped his first appearance on the Modern Art Notes podcast. We were sitting in a window at his New York dealership as we taped. After about 40 or 45 minutes, I began to wrap things up. After all, at the time, Irwin was 84. He playfully asked me if he was wearing me out because he felt like he was just getting started. I laughed and we kept taping. Four years later in 2016, Bob and I taped again. By the way, has an 88-year-old artist ever had a year as great as Irwin's 2016. Not only did his Chinati installation open, but the aforementioned exhibition at the Hirshhorn, uh, an absolute crowning triumph, did as well. Bob and I were scheduled to tape at the Hirshhorn early, like really, really early on a Saturday morning. Uh, And it was so early because I think Bob was getting on a plane to go back to LA and I was about to get on a plane to go wherever the heck I was going. Just before I left for the museum, my laptop shut itself off and refused to come back on. It had completely and totally bricked. Fortunately, I had my entire drive backed up to a cloud service. Unfortunately, the only way I had of accessing those notes via the cloud service was on a cell phone. So when I met Bob at the museum, I apologized that I would have to spend the entire taping 
reading my notes and questions off of a cell phone screen, I promised him that I had prepared quite earnestly and I showed him my notes, you know, kind of like a, like a student showing a teacher the student's work. Bob couldn't stop laughing at the tragedy and comedy of it all. Uh, my disasters seemed to invigorate him and we spent a wonderful morning together. Last week, while in an art museum's storage facility, two colleagues and I came across two Bob Irwin paintings, probably from the early or, or, or no later than the mid-1950s, pictures Irwin had made even before the ABEX canvases uh, that he would soon fight his way out of. One of them was a latter-day Cubist composition featuring two saxophones. It was, shall we say, not a major work. Uh, a curatorial colleague and I looked at it, looked at each other, and just kind of, you know, raised our eyebrows, shook our heads, as if to say, how did Bob Irwin get from that to, you know, making making Bob Irwins? It's one of the greatest stories in art, and we'll hear some of it after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents... Robert Frank and Todd Webb, Across America, 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history, but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist, from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Entre Horizontes, Art and Activism Between Chicago and Puerto Rico. Experience the artistic connections and social justice movements that link Puerto Rico with Chicago via an intergenerational group of artists alongside rich archival material that traces the relationships between art, politics, place, and identity. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. Welcome back. Michael Opping, my first guest, had a long career in art museums at the Berkeley Art Museum, at the Ringling in Sarasota, the Albright Knox in Buffalo, and of course, as the chief curator at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Michael Opping, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. I believe you had your first studio visit with a 40-something Robert Ir or a 20-something curator? Yes, around 1974-75, I was a graduate student, actually. Oh. And Bob Irwin was well-known in California, but, you know, those days in California, there weren't a lot of people paying attention, even to Ed Ruscha. I mean, these are major guys now, but then you could call up 
as I did, I looked up his name in the phone book and I called him up and said I wanted to write an article on his work, which I, I wasn't going to do. I just was using that as an excuse. And he said, come on over. So I went down to Venice or up to Venice from Long Beach where I lived. And uh, there was hardly anything in the studio. Uh, he had just been working on the walls, uh, doing some painting and some plastering. And I was very disappointed. I thought I was going to see these objects and these paintings. And and he said, well, we can just talk. And, uh, you know, maybe you could tell me what you think about these two walls. You know, one was plastered and one was not plastered, just painted. I didn't know what to say. You know, I wasn't prepared for that level of phenomenology as a graduate student. But, you know, I remember driving home on the 405 freeway after that visit and thinking, you know, I learned something from this. It didn't go very well, nothing to write about, uh, but I learned how to see a little bit better. I remember thinking that very, very clearly. And we stayed in touch over 45 years with long pauses in between. But I would call Bob often when I was working on a difficult show and I wanted an angle that I couldn't come up with or a quote that he could come up with that would help me situate things because he was always thinking and he always had an attitude about other artists' work. And he was generous, uh, but he would see things. I remember when, I guess it was five, six years ago, I was doing a Frank Stella retrospective. And I thought, I know Bob met Stella when he was, when Stella was in Southern California in the 70s. And, and Stella was working at Gemini Print Studio. Mm -hmm. And I called Bob and asked him about Stella. And he said, well, I never understood the guy's paintings. I understood what he was doing, but he was such a poor craftsman, which Frank Stella was. I mean, he had staples on the front of his paintings, on the side of his paintings. And Bob would say, well, you know, why don't, why doesn't he clean them up? You know, why, you know, I, I don't understand that. And then I asked Stella what he thought of Bob. And that was really funny. And Stella said, I never got that guy's work. I really didn't. He goes, he was too perfect. You know, everything was too perfect on on the on the Irwins. He would he said you could look at the sides of Irwin's paintings and they looked better than the front of my paintings. He said, <laughs> but you don't look at paintings on the side, you know. Um, and so I didn't get it. But there were those instances where I would um uh I would call him and 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 I never regretted calling him. He was and he was very, very generous in that way. Smart, generous, um, and a really interesting hustler. He really knew how to hustle. You know, he liked to bet on the horses. He was a very good investor. He was one of the early people to invest in Disney Studios. You know, this he didn't sell any in the art. So I was always asking him how he made his money. I mean, how do you have this nice studio in Venice and then, you know, eventually had a place in uh, San Diego? And uh, he said, well, you know, I do OK with the horses. And, uh, you know, <laughs> um, and then he told me about some investments he had. He gave me some recommendations. Um, uh, just 
a really a really a good guy really a good guy someone that you know everybody should have a friend like bob Irwin that you can call and kind of uh get an attitude from i stayed in touch with bob and and he alerted me to his early line paintings and his early dot paintings um and i remember going down from berkeley to see him and as I recall, he had one or two. There weren't that many of those paintings made. He, no. You know, he worked on them for a very long time, each one, very, very carefully. Um, and I was particularly fascinated by the line paintings because of the narrative that they suggested, which would have led me to the empty studio in the sense that the line is painted and it's it's painted, as I remember, from the inside out to the edges. And you just follow that line to the edge of the painting. And then, uh, and we should check this, but I'm almost positive this is true, that at the end of each line, they're slightly tailored. So they're almost like an arrow, just like a little arrow. And they take your eye and your eye just falls off the painting to the wall. And I thought, you know, these are pretty good looking paintings, but really what they're telling me is where he's going, you know, which is to the wall, which is to plastering the wall so that the wall looks perfect or the room looks in such a way that it makes your eyes continually move. I mean, the line paintings look like they're very still, almost like an Agnes Martin painting, but not unlike Agnes Martin's paintings. These are paintings that while they might look still at first, the more you look at them, the more they move, the more they yeah. make your eyes move across the painting. Anyway, so I ended up doing that show with him and that that was a, a great thing to do. Uh, and I learned a lot. Sadly, um, uh, I, I worked very hard to bring these paintings together and the lenders, a lot of the lenders didn't want to lend them. One of the lenders was a guy named Sid Bass from Fort Worth, who I would later work for. And thank goodness he had a, he had a very short memory because I convinced him to lend the Irwin. He protested, protested. I convinced him to lend it. The show was great. When we shipped it back, a forklift went through the crate at the airport. Oh, my God. And... I thought, oh, my God. I called Bob. I told him. <laughs> Bob said, look, Michael, I'll call him. I'll try to calm him down. Anyway, we went through a lot with that. And another little side note was it was Sid Bass. They were a major investing family in Fort Worth. Sid was the one who tipped Bob off to the idea that he should invest in Disney. And Bob uh, <laughs> researched it and invested in Disney. He was a hustler. There was a situation at Berkeley, a show called Spaces Support that we did that included Irwin, Carl Andre, Maria Nordman. Bob was going to do these huge lights that kind of ran over the the Mario Chompy concrete blocks that were galleries. And it was very, very difficult to get it to Bob's precision. And our installer was a cranky old guy who didn't have a lot of patience and bob kept trying to bring him along we're getting very close to the opening the show was was actually organized by mark rosenthal my curatorial mm -hmm. colleague at that time 
And, um, and Bob said, I'm going to, John was the name of the installer. And, and Bob said, I'm going to, I'm going to get John on my side. Just hang in there, Michael. And uh, he went down end of the day and he patted John on the back. He said, John, you are doing a really great job. And I, I really need your help. And he stuck out his hand and John stuck out his hand and Bob had a hundred dollar bill in his hand (laughs) and he bribed John and John took the hundred and he got the job done and he got the job done. When did, when did you become aware of, learn about, begin to become engaged with Irwin and his, uh, and, and the Scrimworks? I became aware of them through publications, ironically through publications, because Bob was the one who said he wasn't going to allow those works to be photographed because they couldn't be seen through photography. And yet there was, I think there was an issue of Art Forum and there was he did the, the first one that i recall seeing was the famous scrim piece in minneapolis that was and a 1971 they, piece that sounds right that sounds right i mean it just looked so beautiful but those scrim pieces were some of the most beautiful works of the 70s when you think of site-specific art in the 70s. And that was a huge thing in the 70s. The idea of an artist making a piece specifically in response to an architecture he is given as a gallery or a museum. And he was one of the first to be really, really careful about placing his work site-specifically. And in 1979, he made a drawing for a Berkeley Art Museum installation, a drawing that uh, my friend and colleague Anthony Graham actually Instagrammed the other day because uh, he was showing it to students. Um, were you involved in that? I was, there were, uh, there were three curators at the museum at that time. David Ross was the chief curator. Mark Rosenthal was a curator of collections and I was the matrix curator. Mark Rosenthal did the show called space as support. And that's the incident in which you know, Bob was working with our installer. It was quite a show. I don't know how to describe Bob's piece for that show. Um, (laughs) It involved, you know, these fluorescent lights. I had some issues with the show because I didn't understand that Bob really felt he could use any material he wanted. And, you know, when you're using fluorescent lights in the 70s, I mean, that's Dan Flavin's material. You can't do that. But then Bob later used Cortan Steel, which is Richard Serra's material. Bob said, I don't care. It's nobody's material. It's it's anybody's material. I can, you know, um, I have an idea. I'm going to use whatever I want to use. But the Berkeley piece were, were fluorescent lights, and they did take your eye up into the space of the Mario Ciampi building and show you how cantilevered many of these galleries were, how they floated, how heavy they were. He made them lighter by using these lights. The lights were on the outside of the gallery, not the inside. They were on the outside of the of the poured in place concrete. So they had a way of of making the place float but at the same time, just rock a little bit. You kind of, um, you know, you are always kind of a little bit afraid in that Chiampi building because of these huge cantilevered pieces of concrete coming out into the space. Um, but that was a great 
it was it was a very interesting piece. I'm not sure I understood it that well at the time, uh, but I enjoyed looking at it for three months. I remember being a kid. I mean, my, my first memories of being in an art museum were in that Berkeley Art Museum building. I think I was five or six. Um, I remember being absolutely terrified of it. I mean, it was um, it was like a living creature. One of the reasons I wanted about your experiences with Irwin is is at Berkeley. There was this moment where Erwin and you are installing paintings, four paintings in an exhibition. Mm -hmm. And then in the same building, um, he does this installation we were just talking about, which is... Space of Support, yeah, or whatever the name of his work was. Very perception-oriented, very kind of what we think of as being um, mature, ethereal Erwin. And of course, in 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 not just a brutalist building, but one of the great brutalist buildings. Did you have any sense that working through a paintings installation in that space informed guided that he learned from paintings being in that space to moving to what were very much was very much not a painting when we were installing the paintings the 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 walls were white but there was a lot of concrete around the room and i know that distracted bob i mean bob's eyes were so sensitive to to the point of being distracted you know, from the point at hand. The point at hand is let's install these paintings and get them to look as good as we can in in this room. But if he saw things in the periphery of his vision, it would it would bother him. Like, well, I have to deal with that. But you can't deal with everything. And in that building, it's hard to describe the room where I I I installed the paintings, but about half of it, as I recall, was poured in place concrete and the other half was a drywalled gallery we'd covered up the um the concrete and that's where we we're putting the line paintings um but it was fascinating being in um installing a show with bob because it wasn't just about making a pretty show i mean he complicated it by how much he saw where you know a lot of artists would just come in and go no 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 michael the big one's got to go on the on that wall and then you can put your other one on this whatever you know he would be like the bigger picture of the whole room the whole museum um and eventually you would get the paintings installed but you learned something as much about the architecture as you did about the paintings michael opping thanks very much you're welcome Welcome back. Next up, Evelyn Hankins, the chief curator at the Smithsonian's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington. She organized Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, a Hirshhorn survey of Irwin's transition from painting to installation, uh, both historically and and literally, I think, as I recall, uh, back in 2016. Evelyn Hankins, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. Your show, which was really the the last major show of, of Irwin's work in a museum, uh, was both an historical show and a little bit more. Did it start as a show of mostly paintings from 57 to about 70 and then become more? Or was the version we saw in the building the way you conceived it? Um, it was always, in my mind a show that would focus on the objects before he abandoned his studio practice. So the paintings, discs, and columns between 1958 and 1970. 
being Bob, when he came and did a site visit, he was inspired by our building. Um, he came up with um, initially a pretty extraordinary project out on our plaza. Um, and after about a year-long feasibility study, we realized that we couldn't realize it to his vision. And so he pivoted and um, he, I received one day in the mail a tube, mailing tube, with a hard copy plan of our galleries with a single red line drawn across one side of our galleries. And that was how we, in, we began to conceive and realize Square the Circle, the Scrim installation. So to my mind, it was a wonderful way to present an artist who for more than 40, 50 years hadn't been making objects. So it was the objects and then where he went from there. What did that line on that plan do to the Hirshhorns famously, sometimes infamously, uh, rounded uh, galleries? It was a single line spanning one side or one quadrant of our donut-shaped building, and it squared the circle, hence the title, Squared the Circle. And it was the culmination of the exhibition. So after you had walked through the survey from 1958 to 1970, where he kind of methodically walked you through his inquiry of perception, there was a, a pause and a space, and then you walked into a, a room with a floor-to-ceiling scrim that was 120 feet long. And on one hand, it absolutely transformed the space, and on the other, it could be invisible. And I think one of the most salient elements of that installation was when Bob said he didn't care if people didn't see it, because if they couldn't take the time to see it, that was okay. And so I had to tell the guards who were in the galleries and the gallery guides that it was okay if visitors missed it and just kept going because it was okay with the artist. So walk us through what it would have been like to experience that show in 2016. I mean, my memory is that uh, going through the paintings prepared you for that last gallery and that last gallery made you want to go back through the paintings to understand them differently. Is that the way it worked? It did. Well, um, we handed the, the whole design over to Bob. Um, you know, he had an attention to detail that, um, of an art, of an artist that I'd never seen before. And so, um, we decided together that we would actually start the show with one of the acrylic discs. Um, because what he said to me, it would be visible from the escalator lobby. And what he said is we need to show them where we're going and this kind of, you know, and then he would chuckle. And so he challenged our team to light one of the acrylic discs, which traditionally had been shown with four different lights. He challenged us to fake a skylight. And so we spent a year working with his studio and his team to, to essentially create a giant light box in the ceiling that could be fine-tuned and that created the effect of a skylight. So you walked in and you saw the disc floating, cantilevered off the wall in a skylit space. And then you walk through and you started with these small handheld paintings. And then you went to the pickup stick paintings, the early line paintings, the dot paintings. And he created this extraordinary design where he just did a series or a succession of walls. And there was one painting on each wall. And so you were encouraged or almost forced to engage that one object 
yourself physically in that space. And so it was just this gradual um, dematerialization and exploration of perception. And then you came to the the installation, the square, the circle. And like you said, it did, it wanted you, it made you want to go back around again to figure out how he got there really, because you, you couldn't really predict that's where he would end up. And it was interesting because I struggled a bit because he wanted, we showed two acrylic discs, our acrylic disc and one that was borrowed from the Orange County Museum of Art. And I was like, do we really want to show two of these? But he was absolutely right in getting people into the galleries with that first disc and to encourage them to kind of come explore the exhibition. I want to come back to that painting by painting installation in a moment. But before we do, back to that skylight. Do you remember thinking or talking with Erwin about how important skylights in artist studios were, are, to the mythology of light and space artists? We didn't really talk about it in terms of mythology, but there are those pictures, there's few pictures of documentation in his studio in Los Angeles. And um, one of them was a, a photo that was actually on, we used on the cover of the book, which is one of the acrylic columns um, in the space. And you can see the two skylights lighting it. And Irwin, who was actually just mopping the floor, is almost disappearing behind that column. And so for Bob, it was it was having a light source that wasn't artificial. It was allowing these objects to kind of exist in space in real lighting conditions. And while he had designed the discs to have these four lamps projecting on them to kind of blur the boundaries between the disc and the surrounding space, he had installed them in his own studio and he really understood them as existing ideally in a skylit space. And as I understood it, it was the MCA San Diego where he really achieved that, you know, I think in the 2000s or the 2010s. And then he came to the Hirschhorn and said, well, we're on the second floor. How do we fake a skylight? And we did. I mean, I had someone who knows Irwin's work incredibly well walk in and say, oh, they're so amazing when they're under a skylight. I don't think they realized that it it was a light box. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the one painting at a time uh, presentation of the exhibition. Was that in your original conception of the presentation or did that come later? Um, no, that was Bob. I had, upon reflection, a really bad idea on how to install the paintings along the, <laughs> uh, along the outer wall of our galleries. I imagined the outer wall of our galleries um, kind of just lining them with Irwin paintings and having nothing on the inner wall. And then um, Bob politely but bluntly said that they would look like postage stamps, basically. And so he came up with a better idea. And I think one of the things that curators really need to learn is that you need to know when to hand it over to an artist. And Bob Irwin knew best. And I think we all realized here that we could hand it over to him and he would make his art look as good as possible. And what he did is he just created a phenomenological reduction through our exhibition. The whole exhibition became a Robert Irwin installation or art project. It wasn't just the artworks and the square, the circle, the whole thing. Um, and the level of detail, I mean, one on the outer, I can't remember which was which, but the outer wall of the galleries was one shade lighter than the inner than the inner wall. Nobody knew that except for the Hirshhorn installation team. But Bob was like, it's going to make a difference. So we did it. But it, I think the thing to point out about Bob is he was also very understanding of the limitations of our building. The Hirshhorn's building will be 15 year, 50 years old next year. We have a lighting system that is not you know, current and has a lot of limitations. And Bob was an artist, you know, he always talk, talked about working with the given circumstances of a site. And he did not, ex he did not try to take over or transform the Bunshaft building, he worked with it. And I think that's a lesson that 
any artist who comes to this building could really learn from. So were there temporary walls that Irwin's paintings hung on one by one as you kind of proceeded as a visitor viewer through the galleries? Correct. What happened was if you imagine the Hirshhorn as a bicycle wheel and there were there are spokes on the bicycle wheel, which are the coffers in our galleries, he we created new walls along the, the, the bicycle wheel spine, so to speak. And you would just go one after another after another. And so you were forced to kind of go in between them and look at one at a time. So if you could imagine a series of walls along a bicycle bicycle wheel spokes, that is what the installation looked like. Did Erwin explain to you why he wanted paintings viewed and considered one by one rather than in the a more normal, you know, eight paintings in a room type installation that has been common in art museums and aristocratic residences for centuries? <laughs> I mean, he never said it, but I, I assumed that it was about that kind of intense engagement with an artwork to focus wholly and to stand physically in front of an artwork. And, you know, people always talk about Bob's practice about being learning about how to see or being a way of seeing rather than about creating objects. And by focusing our visitors' attention on a single object at a time, he ensured that people could see those objects and that they wouldn't be distracted by other things. I mean, the labels were off to the side. It was, it was, it was as clean and focused as you could possibly, possibly create within an exhibition. And I think what's amazing is that those galleries are, are more than 16,000 square feet, and we had 29 artworks and an installation. That reminds me that kind of in those years, the Hirshhorn was experimenting with installations that were dramatic. Um, there was, for example, a Hiroshi Sugimoto exhibition in which um, Sugimoto um, kind of used halogen spotlights on each picture, something he's done a lot since. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so interesting about Bob's show is that on one hand, it was dramatic, this idea of encountering large walls with one painting each. But on the other hand, it was a very kind of minimal or simple gesture. Um, and I think that's, again, at the core of Bob's practice, using very kind of simple materials, scrim, light, and, a, and a, what I always call a light touch and having these effects that are just you know, dazzling and, and transformative. It, it was, I mean, I think the thing about Bob is that he could, he didn't need a lot of special effects. He just needed a few key things that he knew could transform the way we would see the space and then eventually our own perceptive abilities. Early in Irwin's career, he did not allow photographs of installations of his work. Um, when uh, the Berkeley Art Museum show, well, the University Art Museum at University of California Berkeley show that Mike Lopping and I discussed on the previous segment, uh, Irwin did not um, allow, for example, photographs of the paintings or of the installation in the um, brochure catalogish thing disseminated for the show. How did that go for your show? Well, he changed his mind, thank goodness. And um, it was interesting when I was doing archival research, I ended up at several institutions where he had shown his work and I would be handed the archival files. And um, there was inevitably a note that said, there are no photographs of this exhibition at the request of the artist, which I thought, well, I would have taken photographs anyways and just hidden them away and not told him. So, um, and I asked Bob about why he changed his mind and, and, I don't remember exactly what he said, but basically he said he realized that he would be erased from history if there was no photographs of his art. So 
but he truly believed that the photograph was an inadequate surrogate. I think that was the phrase he used for the experience of standing in front of an artwork in person. And so I understand, and given the nuances and the subtlety of his art, I mean, I was just looking at our catalog and it's a beautiful, beautiful catalog, but it doesn't do the show justice. That's just, you know, the nature of work. And I think it's a challenge with all artists, but with Bob's work, particularly photography just doesn't capture the experience. I've seen literally thousands of shows in my life um, and thousands of installation shots. And I think the only time I've ever seen installation shots that took me back to the physical experience I had within a show are the installation shots of of this show um i where where i just remember walls walls dissolving and the only thing i was conscious of when i was in the show was paintings that seemed to be hovering above me and for only me and they were except they were installed at bob irwin's um eyesight level he wanted them to be very, very high. And we actually well, brought them down a little bit. So I will say they were installed for you only, but they were installed at Bob Irwin's eye height. <laughs> Bob and I are about the same height. So. Okay. Well, I'll just say that I. <laughs> there was a moment where I was like, really? That's the center line? And we, we brought it down a few inches because we realized that Bob, I, was like you, was over six feet tall. Hey, I think everybody hangs paintings about six inches too low. So um, All right. well, team, team Bob Irwin. Yeah. Evelyn Hankins, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas, presents Krissa in New York through March 10th, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures, as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Krissa was a leader within avant-garde circles during her years in New York and was one of the first to incorporate neon into her practice. Co-organized by the Manil Collection and Dia Art Foundation, Krissa in New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Jean Quick to See Smith, Memory Map, organized by the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. For nearly five decades, Jean Quictesee Smith, a citizen of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Nation, has charted an exceptional and unorthodox career. The exhibition highlights more than 100 works, including her drawings, prints, paintings, and sculptures. Memory Map is the largest and most comprehensive showcase of Smith's career. Organized thematically, the exhibition offers a new framework to consider contemporary Native American art, addressing how Smith has initiated and led some of the most pressing dialogues around land, racism, and cultural preservation. It celebrates the artist's dedication to creativity and community, emphasizes her deep political commitments, and offers essential and potent reminders of our responsibilities to the earth and each other. On view at The Modern, October 15th through January 21st. More at themodern.org. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. 
To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. Welcome back. Next up, Robert Irwin's two appearances on the Modern Art Notes podcast. The first is from 2012 and runs about 55 minutes. The second is from 2016 and runs about 80. Hope you enjoy them. Robert Irwin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. So you've been making art for, for 50 years now. Why do you still do it? What You could be on a beach somewhere or hanging out in the desert. So, so why still? It's the only thing I ever wanted to be. And, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's gotten better and better and better. I've, I've actually uh, got a lot of questions that really drive me. I think there's uh, issues that need to be resolved. And at least to the best of my ability, that's what I think I'm doing. We're here at Pace Gallery in New York, where upstairs from here, upstairs from here? Downstairs from here. There is your, your one degree, two degrees, three degrees, four degrees is, is being installed. The most famous version of this piece is at the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego. You, you installed it there in 1997, and it hits me like a ton of bricks every time I've ever experienced it. After the first time, I knew what was coming. I knew what the piece was. And when I saw it again late last year during the Pacific Standard Time series of shows, it, it, it just... It, the, the experience of the piece... Is, is just like being kicked in the gut. It's, it's really incredible. In the catalog for your 2007 show at the MCA San Diego, Hugh Davies, the director of the museum and the curator of the show, talked, uh, wrote about how he came to found, find out you wanted to do that piece there and how you'd been in that space dozens, if not hundreds of times. Could you talk about how you came to that piece in that space? It's a, a kind of a long story, but I'll cut it short. I have been working on this... I, I, when you start out with the idea of, of uh, in other words, I'd been a painter. I tried, I, I, I suddenly one day saw that the frame was a limitation that made no sense, really, in a way, because that's not how we see the world. And to any degree that art is involved with seeing and how we look at things, that suddenly became an obvious issue. Frame, the shadow around it um, also raised, made it very clear the difference between uh, a quantitative world and a qualitative world. Uh, the shadow, uh, quanti uh, uh, quantitatively, you can't measure it, you can't weigh it, and if you move the light, it shifts all together. So in that world, it has no meaning and no real bearing on on this frame. Uh, but in a, in a qualitative world, you can't see without shadows. So this real shift between one realm and another realm, between what I call the, you know, from the... Uh, the cognitive self and the uh, and the sentient being that there was that there was just so I stopped being a painter for a moment. I thought well possibly I could uh, work three dimensionally. That would add you know the, uh, fill in the open spaces, but it very quickly became a red herring because the same kind of logic that underwrote the idea of the frame underwrites the idea of the object. They're they're brothers. Uh, brother and sister. So uh, the idea of doing something that is that is, uh, which is I, you say it kicks you in the gut. I actually am knocked out every time I look at it, and part of that is because it's 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 authorless. Uh, you don't you don't think well that's you know Robert Owen, this is a painting this is art. You deal with the whole perceptual issues that are involved there, and you have to make some kind of you know peace with it. Varying people 
varying levels. But uh, so that, you know, I've been, I started with the idea of, uh, when I stopped making the objects, I was confronted with the idea of what uh, you, what people, uh, what I saw as site-dominant sculpture, where uh, a man who saved the city is on a horse with a sword, he sits there and they build the plaza around him. And uh, it makes perfect sense when you start from that point of view. In, in the history of modern art, only recently, people started making sculptures that were site-adjusted. They still were made in the studio, but they took into account that it should be a larger piece or it should have color or etc. It should be a particular material or another. So they adjusted it to the site, but it still had the kind of position of being dominant. Uh, if you then push it one step further, what people called uh, what I uh, is site-specific. I made these four categories at the time. Site-specific is the idea that it's made particularly for that site, you know, not in a sense, may not work well anywhere else. But I felt that the, the real issue was the next one, which was a, what I call site-conditioned. Or, uh, and that is simply that uh, every site, there's no, there's no universal site. All sites are have very different qualities, different properties. And one enters from different places with different kinds of eyes and expectations so that this, they have this thing of being something made totally for that site, unique to it, uh, and doesn't really transfer. The issue then became very clearly, in a sense, well, how do you know that it's art? I mean, does it work? Like with, say, if you make the Sarah and the Plaza site-specific, uh, one really still references to the history of art and to the history of Richard Serra. And so you say, oh, it's a Richard Serra, and it's doing this and that. The idea of uh, something like, say, the Getty Garden. Uh, when you come to the garden, you really reference all the things that I referenced. The, the architecture, the, you know, the, the wire there, the movement through it, why this was done, why that was done, is all there for you. And you could say to yourself, uh, which is really the critical issue here, would I have done that? No, I don't think I would. I would have done it differently. I would have done that. So you can critique it or you can you know, assimilate it through your own process of actually walking through it. And you don't have to know anything about me or anything about art per se. You're talking about aesthetics, about the, to the degree that everyone has that. So that when you go through the whole thing, it now becomes, in a sense, a process that you are actually literally taking responsibility for I don't want to give the La Jolla piece away, but at the same time, there's no way to ask this question without giving it away a little. So if, if people hope to see the piece in the next year or two and, and don't want to know about it, they can skip ahead. As you, as you walk into the space, at least for me, the way I become aware of the intervention that you've made for me, every time I've been in it is first through my nose, through my awareness of the smell of the sea. And I was wondering if you expected that when you made the piece or if you discovered that after you installed it the first time. A bit of both. But at the same time, what you're really talking about something that is uh, uh, four-dimensional now, which is why I call it one, two, three, four dimension, in that you now... Uh, are engaged in visually, which we always are in, in, in a so-called art process. But you've added in now smell, you've added in sound, and there was the thing now functions on all these levels. And, and that's what I like about it, because it does it effortlessly. It just inherits it. Uh, to the degree that it works, uh, no, 
I didn't know. I had I had some assumptions about it. Some, but it, what I liked about it is it was. It's the same thing I like about the garden. I go to the garden. It's like I've never seen it. I mean, it's a brand new. It's a whole brand new experience. Uh, nature, in that particular case, uh, trumps everything else in the sense that I will plan it, but it's better than what I planned. Uh, same thing went with this. In other words, I had these feelings or ideas or whatever about it would be, but it was better than what I anticipated, you know. And that's why I say it's, it becomes, for me, authorless. Uh, I'm not really concerned with that I did it. I still I still have a good time looking at it, just, just being there, feeling it. Uh, that particular one was very, very lyrical, you know. I mean, it really is. I like this thing here because, in a way, you're in New York, and it puts you in New York, and it's the caffeinous of, of, of it, it floats in. That that other piece, people literally kind of stick, weren't sure they stick there. You know, they go, oh, it's, it's befuddling. This one's pretty befuddling, too. I don't know exactly how. Uh, I think it's uh, more pronounced because the sound's going to be, I should think it's going to be pretty clear that that's a cut in the in the window i don't know i i can't stand in their shoes you know but i've always i've always done those things how i feel about it i figure i, uh, I have to make perfect sense for myself if it does then it, it, what it'll do with other people i'm you know not i'm not really involved with i can tell you how it affects me when i walked into it and experienced it here in new york the building across the street from us here across 57th street from us has a black reflective facing up to about the third or fourth story, maybe the fifth story. And your piece here is on the fourth floor, second floor. I'll get it right maybe by the time we're done. And so to look through your piece here and to, to the black reflective surface across the street, it's not the same as looking out over the ocean, but it is, a, it is confusing. And, and you can, I could feel my eyes trying to solve that space. Did you intentionally play off the blackness of the veneer of the building across the street? Actually, more than, more than the blackness, all the geometry, which is immediately, you know, we're in, we're in the city now, and that building has a lot of interesting geometry. So there's all those bronze uh, uh, fittings around the windows and that for the first three floors. And uh, the fact that that's, uh, I mean, I think it's, spectacular, uh, all, all that geometry. And then, of course, you're introduced to the geometry I have. Originally on this one, I was going to put a, uh, either block it out or put a darker uh, on the outside. But uh, the fact that the outside now is a little bit different than the center. It's a, it's a very slight pigmentation. And so the middle, the point is, in the middle also becomes sort of hyper-real. But you don't, in the beginning, right, most people will not know that it's actually open. But now the fact that the middle is like that, playing against the outside, plus the area around it, which is the darker, uh, is I, I, we, I made a shift totally right there. I mean, I put it up with the intention of doing the outside. I'd already brought the guy here to, to put up the material and said, whoa, you know, this is stopped. <laughs> this is... This is great, you know. Uh, it's one of those really fun moments about playing this game because you, it's a little bit like capturing lightning in a bottle. That might be overdramatic, but you're trying to get that, that moment like you had in, uh, in uh, San Diego. And, and sometimes it doesn't happen, you know. I mean, you think you have a plan, but 
and if it doesn't happen, there's there's nothing there really. You know, either either it is or it isn't. So in the old days, when I was first trying to do these things, I would somebody let me finally do something in Kansas or something in a little museum, and uh, you have to go up to the guy that day before it and say it didn't work. You know, I mean, the look on their faces memorable to me <laughs> to this day. You know, I hated to do it, but but and there's. You know, there's nothing else you can hang the hook on. It's either it either happens or it doesn't happen. You were talking about these pieces in the context of frames earlier. Did you ever frame your paintings? It, in, I mean, I, I've seen your paintings now that often have frames around them, but did you frame them? Well, we're talking about 50 years. In the beginning, I, for a very brief time, I was a figurative artist, and I framed them, and they looked like paintings, and, uh, and then uh, became by degrees... as I, because it wasn't ever clear to me. It was a you know it was a process which I was working my way through. I started out very very naive and totally. I mean, I got up out of art school without ever being asked a good question. So I had I really didn't get a good education. I had a kind of magical wrist. You know, I could do that stuff and fool anybody, and including myself. And so it, there, there was a period in which these things slowly dissolved. But it, it was from inside out. I want to f- go in reverse a bit to your work with Scrim. You've told interviewers over the years that the first part of discovering uh, the material or the idea was in Holland, uh, window coverings you saw in Holland. How did you get from, from seeing those window coverings in Holland to the synthetic you ended up using? You know, it's... One of my favorite things in the world to do is just walk about. And pretty much everything I know, I've learned by just looking at things, you know. And you see something and you say, oh, God, that's really beautiful. I mean, uh, so I kept, in Holland, windows are a big deal. I mean, it's very important to them. And everywhere I went, there was this, on the windows, this material. I thought, God, that material is, is spectacular. So I started asking around, looking, what have you because I was there doing some work, and it uh, turned out it was 14 foot wide, which, in other words, most materials are, you know, 30 inches or 36 inches and that, which would have made them not usable in, in, in very many contexts. But this stuff comes 14, well, it must be a spectacular loom that, that I have not seen. I've been to the factory, but I haven't seen the loom, or some of the factories. They're all in Lyon there. It's a uh, a product that is all made in that area, still is made in that area, and is very inexpensive. So I, I bought a couple of rolls of it, and that was when I had this coved room with the lights in there. So I started stretching some pieces. You know, I'm now looking for energy. I'm looking for some way to affect what, how, you know, how you see or how you feel the space. And that was a great, that was a great one because it has so little body, has so little, you know, you know, as a material, it's almost totally ephemeral. And uh, it was a great material, you know. Started playing with it. Had no idea what to do with it in the beginning. But I also found that it worked really well with light and what it did with light and that. And uh, so started trying to make a few of them. You've made works with Scrim for, you know, about 30 years, at least through 2007. And and just to pick one and to talk about it... The one you made in 2007 at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego is called Square the Room. And it takes a space in the building on Kettner and squares the room, I guess, would be, you know, to do it. it. 
Well, but it is straightforward and it isn't in the sense that I think it's been installed there twice and I've seen it both times. So you'd think by the second time, just like one degree, two degree, three degrees, four degrees, that I would know it was coming. And the second time, I still didn't know. I mean, I'd been in the space for 15 minutes before I recognized it was there. And then I had that same punch in the gut kind of feeling. And it got me thinking then, and I started thinking about again now, you know, in preparation to talk to you, how much you try to go after that sudden punch in the gut feeling when you plan an installation? Well, what I, I mean, in, in some kind of order, this thing of, of, of a conditional poster thing is that uh, what you want to do is respond to the character, the quality, the experience of how one comes to the thing. So you, essentially, you're not looking towards how it's going to affect. You're, you're trying to figure out how how does it make any sense. I mean, it's got to make sense. It's got to, in a sense, uh, have inevitability about it in a way. And uh, uh, the fact that it, that it maybe kicks you in the gut, but somebody else may be just bemused by it or someone else might be confused by it, you know, et cetera. I, I, I basically, I, 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 I'm not anti other, I'm anti-social, but I don't, I don't try and figure out what anybody else is going to do or fear. I, I try and make perfect sense to myself that knocks me out, which usually, when, like when I saw these things down here, man, I was, you know, I found the gold, I found the gold. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I really was excited. I mean, it's fucking good, you know? And so I know I, I got something, you know? How it actually plays out and all these other things are beyond my control, really. And I suppose I could have some control, but it's, it doesn't interest me. It, it, what interests me are, are as I said, uh, I, I kind of at one point became a question addict and started re-feeling that a quality question presented, uh, or uh, which those things are not, not necessarily a question, but, a, but an experience in a way, that they ha- essentially they make the answer not only possible, but they actually make the answer inevitable. That it really isn't answers, questions, it's questions, answers. Uh, historically, we we essentially make those breaking points that when it was done, when it was done, the, the moment of conclusion in a way. But I'm actually of the feeling that in the process, the more important part is a properly posited question makes is what ultimately reveals the answer. So the really mo- great moment is when the question is properly posited. I'm kind of positing questions in a way, uh, mostly not at them, but at me. Uh, you know, I, and these things intrigue me, and I try and posit this thing. As, can I make this thing? What, what and why do you do it? And what, what's the rhyme and the reason of the thing? And does it make, you know, does it make any sense? And, and also, then finally, I get, I get, I get my gut reaction is that, uh, it's that I found the gold. You know, I, I remember that dance from that little, that movie, that great Walter Houston does the dance when he finds the gold in Sierra. Yeah, he goes, I found the gold. You, you idiots, you wouldn't even see, you wouldn't know if you fell over it, you know, <laughs> and he, he knew that the goal was there, but there was nothing that any, most other people would know. But once he knew it, you know, the conclusion in a sense had already been drawn. That's maybe a funny parallel, but it, it, that's the excitement of the thing. is, is it, The thrill of it is there for that. There's a scrim piece you have conceptualized for the Chinati Foundation in Marfa in Texas. You showed drawings for it, 
at the 2007 MCA San Diego show. Chinati has had an architect in um, who's finished the drawings. It's going before their board and they should be fundraising for it, I think, by summer or maybe by fall. Could you, it, it, it's a piece in the former hospital building at just off of, the, or it, it's part of the fort, but kind of just off of what people typically think of as, as the Chinati property. And your idea is to do something in the whole building, taking, making use of this line of windows and the center courtyard. Could you maybe describe that piece a little bit and talk about what the questions were there? I think for me, that's a, a fairly uh, usual that I've been working on that thing for eight years now. And I've, at this moment, I have no confidence that it'll ever get done. It just for them to be able to raise all that kind of money, I, I don't know at this point. I, the solution has, at varying times, I mean, when they offered me the hospital, pretty interesting. Uh, it's interesting to me how well those buildings work in that environment. And they were probably done by just somebody who hacked them out in Washington, D.C. during the war. You know, they're very functional, very straightforward, low-key, and everything. But they really are amazingly right for that situation. So I, I fell in love with the building and, uh, from the very beginning. The building was falling down. It still is. I mean, it's, there's no roof. The floor is gone. And it's in dis total disarray. Uh, so I went at it and looked at it for a good period of time and realized at least uh, uh, that it costs more money to restore it than to build it. Because you have an old foundation that you'd have to very carefully dig around and so on and so forth, and you'd have to reinforce things, etc. Because it has none of the kind of reinforcement and technology that we have now, so it didn't wear as well as it would now. So, with that possibility, my original things was to be was more dramatic in a way that the uh, the building would be broken up in, uh, in the long on those long directions, maybe four times, so that you would pass being in the building, out of the building, in the building, out of the building, which was a, were much more able to control the whole physical physicality of it, i.e. architecture, without being an architect necessarily. But So that was the first one. And then at one point, the possibility of, of color, uh, because it's the thing, when I looked, when, I loved the building, but the last thing I wanted to do was to do a New York show in there. You know, it's a gallery show. This, because the real beauty in Marfa is that incredible landscape. When you first come to Marfa, you sort of say, well, Marfa, here it is. It's sort of in the middle of nowhere, and it's flat. But at that time, you, to get dinner, you used to have to drive to a place called Alpine. So you drive up to Alpine, which is sitting in a kind of set of rolling hills. Very lovely, you know, quite a dream. And then at night, you had to go over to Fort Davis, which is at the base of a mesa, which again is much more dra dramatic than that, and then come back to Marfa. And so I would, I would do this triangle and come back and say, finally saying, God, Marfa is, is magical. These others are, yeah, more idyllic than that, but there's something about Marfa that is just. <sighs> so the idea of doing something indoors when all the beauty is outdoors, and that's why I was breaking the building and things of that sort. Because I wanted, I really wanted to engage the, the, the space around it. And so the early ones were that way. And then for one reason or another, I, had to, I came up with the color and eliminated the thing of the color. And there's a whole set of drawings for those. And then the last one, which is the one is now, I, there may be some scrim in it, but there may not. That what's actually going to happen, essentially, there's a sort of north 
uh, east-west. There's a long east-west and a short north-south. So that you enter in where you do now. The building is still the building as it is. It's rebuilt in almost perfect replication. And But as you enter the, as you enter on both ends, it's, the first part is open to the sky. No roof. The way that it is now, in other words, which is, uh, which is actually very nice, you know. So you don't get in, go into the building. You go into the building by steps. And then you, you enter just at the top of one of the long halls. And you have on, I don't remember now how many windows, let's say 40 windows on this side and 36 on that on the inside. The idea now is to use, played around whether or not it would be piece of glass, but actually probably using a tint, of which I've just used down there. Doesn't cost anything. It's kind of a really nice material. It has no physicality, really. Start it with the window on one side with the window just slight tint, and each, there's X number of windows so that you actually would, one inch, would get one inch thicker and thicker until finally it became completely dark. And on the other side, you go the opposite. You start with it totally dark and become light. So that one side is quite dark in the, from dark to light, and the other one's from light to dark. But also, it's really simple. You know, there's this, and also, because the floor fell out, standing in there, the height of the window became at a really interesting point where the landscape outside was like, uh, like a Dutch painting, you know, just a thin, and the rest of it is all sky. So now you're inside, but you're, the window is constantly changing. It's constantly that you're having this interplay with it, but you're also, the whole time you're inside, you're dealing with outside. You're going, you know, the, the sky. I, I like, I like the way it feels. Makes, and makes great sense there for me. It also would be, I could pay me, I may put a scrim down the middle that lets it record the light on it or what have you. That would be, I, I normally when I do these projects, if I can, I come up with a sort of backup plan on that. In case the first thing doesn't completely work, maybe, maybe putting the scrim there would work. I actually like the idea that it, that it can be done, period. Just, just a slight adjustment on the windows. Another material I wanted to talk about is fluorescent light. There's a fluorescent light piece here at Pace, and there's one uptown from here at the Metropolitan that's been on view in recent months. I guess earlier in your career, you did you made some pieces where fluorescent light was sort of in the background or in support of, of parts of the piece. I don't know if I'm phrasing that the right way, but these are works where, where the fluorescent light is front and center in the piece. You've made works like that in San Diego in 2007 and at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And so I read in some, some interviews going back many years, maybe, maybe the late 70s, that you had kind of avoided fluorescence because, like everybody else at that time, they were so Flavin-esque that they were, you know, what to do. And that you realized that you could maybe begin to use fluorescence because Flavin used the casing or the housing in which the light sat in such a sculptural way that if you went away from that, if you didn't use it that way, you could make use of the light. Is that right, or was there another reason you embraced fluorescence? As I said, I put all those lights in the very beginning, and uh, fluorescent was was kind of a candidate in the beginning because it's the dumbest and least you know you you habituate to it very quickly. So the light, the ambience was more readily apparent. So of all the lights I looked at the time, that was the, the, the one I liked the best. I had reservations about it. I didn't know quite what to do with it. It had nothing to do with flame at the time. 
the fluorescents that we do now, uh, I, I put them on the wall in the dumbest form you can. In other words, just straight up and down. Three and one quarter inch by three and one quarter inch by three by three by three, you know, et cetera. And, uh, and uh, no designing with them, no, you know, none of that stuff at all. The difference also was that palette for it with theatrical gels, those things are actually wrapped like the, a white. When you see a white, now fluorescence is not an easy light to be around. Uh, very hard to live with, actually. But even the whites have maybe eight gels on them. A very subtle violet, a very subtle green, a very this. So that everything that happens next to them, and if you'll have one, you'll think it's kind of greenish. You put another color next to it, it's not. It, it's transient. So that all these things had to do with action and interaction between them. In other words, if the phenomena... The explanation I know I use for people now is they say, you know, you had a high school teacher or a grade teacher, she put a red square up on the wall. She said, stare at this thing for 20 seconds. And you do, and she takes it away, bang, there's a bright green. That That is phenomenal. That's the eye just seeing. That's not there, that's in the eye. The eye is now acting on it already. It's showing all the activity that's going on so that... Anytime you put these colors together, what you're getting is a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh color. Now, most people are oriented to look at the object, i.e. the fluorescent. Uh, so it takes a little while to uh, let go of that and start saying, whoa, wait a second. When this touches this, it's suddenly a third color or a fourth color. that is magically there like the green, but it's not there. And at the minute I move it, it's different, or it's different. I put the same tube in four different places in four different relationships, four different things happen. So the idea, I mean, so it intrigued me that now I'm back to an object, which is a contradiction, but I brought back the idea of something which is at least an attempt to be phenomenological, that that's really what's interesting about it. That material, the theatrical gel, it's, I mean, I was. I had a palette when I was a, a painter. I had a palette. Of, I mean, other things, but I had a palette. Say when I was doing the garden, unbelievable palette. I have an unbelievable palette. There is absolutely no, almost no color I can't make. When you put them together, these they, these companies that make it for the theater, they make a thousand gels, and those they're calibrated to be. This one will be plus green. 1% or 4% or, or minus green, 2% or 4%. And then you start putting one on top of the other, and it turns out maybe it'll have eight gels on them. And if you put them in in one order, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, you'll have one color as a result. But if you put them, any one of them, you change it, it, change, it will change it. So there's this, you know, it has a sort of specific, specificity about it. But... I mean, it's unbelievable, the, the colors. Also, doing these things, if you look at them phenomenologically, I mean, to me, they, I look at it, I think, whoa, wow, look at that, my God. You know, it's, it's incredible. We have been talking a lot about light, as, as directly and indirectly, as, as a material. And I wonder if there are artists, maybe painters, probably painters, whose use of light is still important to you or was particularly important to you. You know, it's a very uh, awkward question for me because basically I don't look at other people that much. I mean, when I was young, you know, when I was young, let's say, for example, I was I was painting these big, fat, meaty paintings. I was 
trying to be an abstract expressionist away, and two nice little things happened. One was that they had the first abstract expressionist show in California, in L.A. It was in the old Natural History Museum, and so I had never seen one. I'm, I think I'm painting them, you know, and uh, so I, I, I'm going in there, and I'm uh, 50 yards away, walking through the dinosaurs, and they have two paintings on the wall. If I remember right, I, about the first one, I know I'm right about saying, I think the first one was the James Brooks. And it was like 12 feet by 10 feet or something. Real strong, black, white, red, green, you know, had all the, uh, very powerful intended painting. And next to it is a Philip Guston. A little, you know, scrumbly, pinky, little bit of green, you know, just it's small and that thing. And I'm standing there 50 yards away, and I've never seen one of these, these things. And I'm thinking, wait a second, because I think I'm painting as powerful as I can with these mud pies I'm doing. I'm looking at this Philip Guston blows the James books right off the wall. And I'm thinking, wait a second, how, you know, how can that be? He has scale on his side. He has contrast on his side. You know, he's got all the obvious things. But in, but the point was that in in the Brooks, two and two made four. In the in the in the uh, Augustine, two and two never made less than five. And I realize it's all about the action interaction, you know, not just about the thing itself, but how they act on one another, and how they multiply when they do it. When somebody really knows what they're doing, they multiply. It's twenty five, thirty, and that that thirty now becomes in a sense somewhat mysterious because it isn't. Uh, uh, obvious, you know, it's it's all about interactions that are take a real eye to to understand experience. So, yeah, I, I saw that, and, and that was that changed everything. The second thing was, at that time, the best artist at Ferris Gallery was Craig Kaufman, and I I'm, I'm making these things. I'm getting in a Zen mood, you know, and coming in. And, <laughs> buckets of paint, and I'm doing this thing. We're sharing a studio, you know, one open room. And I'm doing this, and I look over, and Craig Kaufman is in a smock. And he's got a little, one of those little medical tables. He, and he puts up 50 cents worth of red and a little bit of blue and a little bit of this. And a little bit. Then he goes across the room, and he sits there for a long time and walks, and then all of a sudden walks across the room, you know, and then goes back and sits there. Goes, and he was, you know, clearly a better artist than I was. But I'm, but watching him and then what I'm doing, it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's, wait a second here. You know, those were like revolutionary moments for me. I mean, they just turn you around backwards, make you question everything you're doing. And then, of course, seeing my first de Kooning, the right period, uh, door to the, uh, to the river or Montauk Highway. And suddenly it's just this slash of blue at the top and a slash of green at the bottom. It wasn't sky and it wasn't grass. It was a slash of blue and, you know, and deeply structured, very simply. Uh, but also at the end of the brushstroke, there'd be a splash. And to me, it had the accuracy of a collar on a Vermeer. And I'm like, you know, these are, so those, during all that, yes, I, I, I did. But, but the, the process I went through was like a phenomenological projection. I start with one thing and end up not being a painter. Step by step, having no idea that was even a possibility at any point along the way. So then it became internal as a kind of set of questions uh, that one thing led to another. And each time I would be confused, 
and not sure about what going. So the only way you could deal with it is to weigh the quality of your question. If it held water, then you're stuck with it. You know, I mean, you, you have to you have to go after it. And uh, so, in a way, I I came out something at the end was nothing that I had intended in the beginning. Switching gears a little bit, I can't think of an artist as closely tied to one author's account of his life or work as you are tied to Lawrence Weschler and his remarkable book about you. I, when I go to artist studios, it's in every single one. Is it a good thing that, that one writer has gotten to tell your story so thoroughly, or is that a burden? Is that a pleasure? That's a complicated question. And, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings on the thing, but... Uh, I was teaching myself philosophy because at one point I had gone to New York and got my ass kicked, not by philosophy, but but by everybody had, at that time, really strong cases for what they do and very well struck. And I had expected to have a dialogue and what I had was a confrontation in a way. And I realized how dumb I was. So I I thought about it and I said, well, how, how do I deal with this? And I thought, well, you know, basically, really, ultimately, all the arguments really stem around a half a dozen to a dozen key questions and that philosophy's been wrestling with. So I thought, why start with the secondary to start with the primary? But somebody who basically hadn't read a book up to that time, seriously, that was a hard process. So I would I'd read every day, all day, and take notes. I would put down Hegel in red, that he said this, he said this, he said this, and, uh, and this and that. And so and every now and then I'd say, how to argue with him. Okay. And I'd write mine in green. His is in red, mine's in green. And back and forth. And by, you know, five pages later, I'd have to apologize for my, <laughs> because obviously I had, didn't get it, you know. So it, was, it became almost like I was having a dialogue with these people because I, I wasn't smart enough to do it piecemeal. I could only do it all the time, full time, become immersed in it. And, it was, you know, it was a spectacular experience for me. In the middle of this, he tells the story slightly different, but there's strong evidence that it's not quite as he told it. I met Ren Wixler, a, a man named uh, White, who was at UCLA, did a oral history. And uh, the oral history was, but apparently it was a good, pretty good interview. And yeah, and the key to it was that he was, tr- he was a, a pretty good painter and he but at the same time he was really intrigued with what I was doing and with the whole idea of so-called abstraction and so he was really his questions were real he was saying why why would you do this I mean what what you know so there were real questions which I think elicited pretty good real answers at that time and uh, so we had a really I mean it was a serious dialogue and this guy wanted to know he was dead serious he wanted to know and so they then had that job of transcribing it. That's what Lawrence Wexler did. He transcribed the White's interview. And in the process, he says it another way, but I know it wasn't that way. But he said he would like to meet me, you know, which I was said, absolutely. So we started meeting on UCLA's campus. I lived two blocks away, so I could walk. I was going there and sitting under a tree, you know, doing my thing, and he would come. Well, the first thing was that, and he's a very good philosophic scholar. That's what he, he majored in. 
but what he really is at heart is a 60s social activist. All right? Which is, which is great. I mean, he went to what's that funny school up in where everybody hugs trees in the middle of California? It's Santa Cruz. Went to Santa Cruz, you know? And so, Actually, he became my mentor in a way. In other words, I'd say, Hegel said this and this and this and this, and he'd say, well, you better read that chapter again. You know, and he was smarter than I was about it. So I'd read the chapter again. So we started up a dialogue. And at one point I said to him, what in the world are you doing in this little job here? You know, I mean, you're way, way too uh, talented for this. He said, well, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't have any money and, you know, this is, supports me. I said, if you had your absolute druthers, you could do anything you want to do, what would you do? He said, I'd write for the New Yorker. And I said, why the New Yorker? You know, why the New Yorker? And he said, because they're the only magazine that publishes in length, real, you know. And at that time, this guy, I forgot his name right this second, but he, was, he, he, he collected writers. I said, well, why not? And he said, oh, God. He said, they don't hire, I mean, they've got more writers than they need. This is because this guy just had, he had more articles than he needed, he had, you know, than he could publish. But because he loved it. And he loved writing. And he loved writers. And I said, God, you know, that's, uh, I mean, you know, I understand, you know, but that's, anyway, so at one point he came to me and said, he liked to do the, the, what turned out to be the book. Okay, so he came and he said, can we do that? He wanted to do it originally about Howard Warshaw, and which is, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't connect the two. Howard Warshaw and somebody else. The other person made more sense. But anyway, that's what he wanted, kind of wanted to do. And then uh, I helped him get a, a grant. I forget the name of it. It's not, not an arts grant, but it's, anyway. So he got, but he got it. It's a grant from the, from the government. And in the middle of it, it had requirements that he at one point submit, and he could, oh, Howard Warshaw and Ed Keenholz. And so Ed Keenholz would take him out on a boat and and threaten to throw him overboard, you know, and he would never answer his questions because Ed was a real game player. Like he, he was, that was, he loved doing stuff like that. So he could, couldn't get, couldn't pin Ed uh, Keenholz down to doing, you know, to the interview, I mean, to, to work with him. And so he suddenly is confronted with the deadline. And he said, well, you know, we've been talking for all this time, and can I do it with you? Sure, you know, why not? And it's something we neither one of us had anticipated. I said, well, I'm gonna, we'll have to take a run through my, my growing up and all that and show you my house, and we drove around. And we, you know, we're having a, a really good dialogue. And he was my teacher in a way at that point, uh, even though I'm the one who got him out of the, out of out of the rut, but so we had a nice we have a nice relationship, and so he wrote the book, and the book was published in the New Yorker. I mean, a, a bigger excerpt, but more the New Yorker. And from that moment on, he became employed by the New Yorker, and in a way, the people talk about the book in artist studio. He now became the most published writer for a period of time in the New Yorker. You know, and so it's, his was a great success story. It's really his book, and it's. It's because he was able to take, he has a, a gift to be able to take complicated things and make them understandable. It's, 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 a, it's a great talent. It's embarrassing. People come up with that book now, all rat-eared, you know, want me to sign it and tell me how much it changed their whole life, you know. It's like, you know, whoa. 
It's very heavy, you know. I'm embarrassed by it to some degree. I've never read it. The book is really Ren's book. I mean, people say to me, you know, and I always say it's Ren's book. He wrote, you know, he wrote the book. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm granted I'm in, I'm in the middle of it, but, and, and I think the book has a, a nice authenticity about it. Two more questions. Is there anything looking back that you have proposed or pitched, but didn't get the chance to do that now looking back, you particularly wish it happened? One or two of the proposals you made that, that really stick out? First of all, I've made a lot of proposals that didn't happen. And it's one of the things that does stick a little bit in my craw is that I'm, people now are getting sometimes, you know, a $40 million or a $10 million project. Man, you know, when I did it all those early years, I, I couldn't, I, you know, I wasn't getting anything. And most of the projects, a lot of the projects I did were dangerous, you know, in the sense that I, I would have had to bankrupt what a little bit I had if I, uh, but uh, I think a couple that I really, what well, it was, it, it turned out to be really good for me. I did a arts enrichment plan for the Miami International Airport. I worked on it for three years, and it was it was a little bit like me going back to school. It was really educational. Man, I learned so much from doing this project. Uh, it made it possible for me to do like a Getty, the complexity of that on that scale. The one I maybe think about most is your proposal for Ohio State University and the quad there. I think it was a terrific idea. I looked at the thing. It had a very soft bowl quality to it. Uh, people had made a, they had made a formerly a formal, they were trying to be kind of like Virginia, you know, this, and they had a nice formal path in there, the library down at the end, but people had walked and walked and walked and walked and uh, crisscrossed this thing. And so they actually concreted all. So they had this sort of a lot of a funny pattern laid on top of a pattern. Then every hour, every two hours, there'd be a class break and people like an existential uh, uh, landscape. These people just going all these different, yeah, like that. I thought it was, it was a competition. I won, I, I, I did 24 competitions. I won 23 of them. Never got, never got a project done. That particular one was a competition. It was not invasive. It really respected the thing. It would not have changed it in terms of, of what it's like. It would just, activated what was already going on, would have created benches for people sitting on the edges of it around. It would have separated the kind of activities on there, people throwing Frisbees or people just sitting reading books because the Frisbees wouldn't be on the slanted ones, you know, and et cetera. I thought it was a pretty good, pretty good proposal. You did kind of mine that idea for the four-piece part you did for Rachofsky House in Dallas. That whole night, it, that, that, that definitely fed back, you know, and there was the tilted plane which is what I did there, a nice little, that's a nice piece there. Very powerful, very, but very, very gentle, very low key in a way. Uh, they took incredible care of it. It was really, it's a really, really, that was a nice, it was a nice experience too. And then uh, my last question is, so we've been talking about pieces that you didn't get to do. Looking back over all the years and all of the pieces you've made, do you have a favorite one or two or three? I, I probably do. I, you know, it's, it's been a lot of years now. I think the garden maybe have to be right at the top of the list. The garden is magical. The thing about nature is that you plan it, but you don't really. You essentially have a kind of idea about what it's going to do, then it always does something better than you expected. I mean, so every time I go there, it's different. It's, you know, it just, and you know, I'd never planted a plant before I took on that project. That's a problem, but that, that's a project that I, for a couple of reasons. One, I, um, 
because it's a beautiful garden. And I think it makes really good sense in the place. And the architect hated it, but I think he was, I, I really honored the architecture. It had a very key element because you don't, it's not in an idyllic glen somewhere. It's specific to that space, which is architectonic and the building the scale. So all the, the scale of the trees and the necessity for all those things were dealing with the, of that. And you move in, you see the architecture, you move out. And, you know, and so I took it really into account. But the thing that I like about it best of all is that you go all the way down and you're, it's like a mesmerizing trip in a way to, to the plaza. And you arrive at the plaza and you might say to yourself, well, that was, you know, uh, that was really nice. That was really helpful. You know, you wonder about why it was. But let's say you're a, you're a carpenter or you're a designer or you're a or horticulturist or whatever. Uh, you go back on your next visit or you go back to sort of figure out what happened. The thing that I think I did really well was it's, in other words, let's say a railing i would keep it simple because it was not every time you cross the stream it's a different sound i tuned the water on both sides every time you cross the stream your relationship with the outside is from like looking under out of the trees or like a window or being inside the character of the plant the colorations in that on first level second level third level the, the literally one level will attract bees another one will attract butterflies you know that's a uh, and there's a great story around a piece you did at MoMA in 1970. Uh, Jenny Licht was a terrific lady who had organized the unions there, and, uh, who who was really had a sense of adventure because the modern's not all that modern for a long time. But she did this thing called projects. Some really nice in one little room they did these projects. That was the first of her. That was the, this was the first one. So I get this call from her. I by the way I had not done an installation yet. I was playing around with in my room. So to get the first one at the modern was, I mean, unbelievable. So she called and said, uh, uh, would you like to do this? Kidding? Yeah, sure. And she said, well, you know, if you come, we've got this, I've got this room, it's unprogrammed, which is unusual. The modern doesn't have any plans for it, so we can do it, we can use it. And she said, but I have no money at all. You know, so I said, don't worry about it. I will be there. I brought my friend Jack Brogan, who's here also, and uh, now. And so we fly back to New York and on the red eye and go to the modern. And, she, and by that time, she said, we got a few problems. The problems are that the unions won't let us paint or do any electrical. You can't do anything because it's not programmed, so they can't do it, but then you can't usurp their job. So, uh, so, and she said, and the other thing is that, that what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to do it at night. So, so she said, I'm going to let the, open the door for you and you'll be basically locked in there with the, there, the guards know about you and this and that. So, so there are Jack and I are in there at night. And, and so this little room is a little po, po dunk. I mean, it's not a good room. It feels, the walls feel a bit fat, like a wooden, you wouldn't a basement. There's a, a, a channel that run all the way across the building. I had a, sky, a, a shaft, which had a skylight at the top, but it's linear, you know, went all the way across. And uh, so we go in there to start taking a look. We go in there to, to take a look. And each, so we, I come up with some ideas, some feelings about it. And the first thing I did was to, the skylight, 
We just come up with another neon piece, then fluorescent piece. The skylight has a shaft. It has a, a, a rows of fluorescent running eight footers, running the length of the building. And underneath it is uh, uh, what was in those days an egg crate size filter, you know? About yeah, that yeah, thing. Yeah. Now they do them real thin, real yeah. fine, but they used to be about that big. They're squares, you know, acre. And what, and I put in lines of warm, cool, warm, uh, cool, uh, daylight, you know, that sort of thing. The egg crate fractured it so that there was very subtle, but there was like a rainbow in the, in the room. Yeah, it was, which was kind of magic because it was really disembodied. But also, I used to have to every, I did work a number of nights there. I used to have walk, walk by a room full of brilliant Brancusis. You know, it's like, there are these beautifully resolved, I mean, absolutely pristine things. And I'm in this room, you know, <laughs> screwing around trying to figure out how to do something. So we put a, we put a scrim in it, which filtered the light also. We left it empty except for a, a one wire that goes across What's what's the guy now that does the string pieces? Fred Sandbeck. There's a wire and it just goes into the wall, disappears. You know, you don't see it, and then paint out the first little section of it so that this this, this wires. Uh, there's a couple. Of them. It, your eye can't focus on the wall because the, the the grabs it, and you've got it, but you can't hold onto that. It goes so your eyes in constant motion. Pretty much that was the whole piece along with this rainbow, which when your eye got suspended, you could sort of, you could then see it. So it was very subtle. So my friends, Jenny Licht and Pace of uh, Arnie, Arnie Klipscher, come. And they're both being, they're my friends. They want to like it. They're looking at it saying, hmm, hmm, uh, well-seasoned, uh, provocative, you know. <laughs> And I, I had the, uh, so, and then this is a true story. Then there was a screen in front of it. It was at night. And this black kid looks around the corner. He's like 15 years old, 17 something. He said, Hey, can I come in? I said, Sure. He comes in. I can tell, you know, the key is the body language. The way he moves in the space, I can see that he's seeing. You know, he's going to say, Hey, what? he said, Wow, man. Oh, hey, all right. You know, my two friends are standing there like, you know, <laughs> this kid got it, which was, I swear, I, you know, that that's, was a great moment. So then he leaves. So then I leave. And then the modern, which never acknowledged it, was never published. It was nothing, nothing. But they insisted on putting a label in there. And so I took the label off. I mean, I had a kid take the label off every day. Every day. Which I think is was at that moment in time a fairly interesting gesture, that that you had to you had to start from scratch and decide was this intended? Is it finished? Does it make any? You know, in other words, you because when you go into a museum, you are already seeing art, and you've already made you know there are levels of of commitments that you've already in a sense resolved. But when you put the thing up so that you really have to make the decision yourself, I think that was which is essentially sort of critical to a lot of basically what I do. Well, Robert Irwin, thanks so much for being on the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's been a, a real honor to talk to you. It's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed good quality questions. Thanks.
Robert Irwin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Before we get moving through the work in this show, the show here at the Hirshhorn, we're going to talk about the Chinati Project and a few other things. But I want to start by talking about something you've done here in the museum's galleries. Each gallery of the, the Hirshhorn show, and of course it's installed around the, the donut hole here, each gallery wall floats. So you can walk around the show on the outside, you can walk around the show on the inside, and, and go through it any way you, you want, and each wall floats in, in space, and then there's a painting or a disc on, on, on one side or the other. I've lived in Washington for 20 years, almost now, and I've never seen that installation here and talking to people at the museum. They've never seen a wall hung like that. And I understand it was your idea, and it looks fantastic, and I wonder why you wanted to do it that way. Obviously, it's, you know, it makes more sense. But it also turns out to be interesting enough, I think, uh, a whole comment on the architecture and whole idea of making a round museum and having all curved walls. And the most obvious is that, for example, if you, in the first, say, group of paintings, if you see them all at one time, you see in one thing the, the reduction. And this way, you get to see them one at a time, and then it slowly just, you know, comes out a, a different kind of experience. So you get to actually see each one, and then you realize that there's this thing is diminishing or whatever, is disappearing. And so that made good sense to me. Also, I just think it uh, moving through the space, it's a much, much nicer kind of way to do it. Uh, so it's very simple. That And then, of course, uh, the move for the very last thing was incredibly obvious. I mean, just even on the drawing, you look at it. And then it, then it in a sense, throws back the whole dialogue about squaring the circle. But that, and then that wall, you know, that curved wall, now becomes real drama. I mean, that thing just really bows out there. So it seemed like, I mean, it worked out nice. I've seen the the line paintings and the dot paintings and the the that early work in other shows and in other installations. Now that you mention it, I've never seen them installed in a way where you get to look at them one by one by one by one. Have you ever installed them that way before? I don't think I've ever actually had a a chance to show them this way. I think this is the first opportunity, really. Uh, I had never even thought about it. Uh, I got, when I got here, I was not that very in interested or excited about doing the show uh, because it was old old history, you know, not particularly interested in stumbling over that, oh, going through that. Um, but in, on my way out, I saw on the first level, the outdoors, you know, it stands on four legs in a way, and one of them's closed with the lobby. I looked up at the ceiling of that, and there are these, uh, I don't know whether they're just a, a decor or what, but there's just these lines that are apart, and then they come, come together, and then they go apart again, which is really the, the fun for me. Man, I had an idea for that immediately and that's what I wanted to do I was wanted to put a, a scrim on every one of those which exactly how following the what this thing is this detail put it all the way around so that the whole museum stood on this if you turn a mushroom upside down for example you you see all those you know it's a fan like going 
and uh, the idea of the whole thing standing on that fan, which is at night you see it, it's already lit for it. I wouldn't have had to do anything. That, of course, was not something they were had thought of doing at all. And so I uh, kind of went along with the show with the, <laughs> with the idea that I, would, I was going to make this thing happen. But, you know, it's a, it's a, this is the government. It's a bureaucracy. So they brought in a couple of uh, engineers to engineer this thing to make sure it's not going to tear the building down and uh, that it's, you know, not crazy in some way. And these guys were, they didn't have any idea what they were looking at. They looked at this material and it's, well, you know, and, uh, they're trying to figure out what, how, to, how to deal with it. And I explained to them this material's been made for like 100 years, uh, generally in the south of France, uh, near Lyon, uh, called Volet-Turial, which I saw. They use in museums to stretch on ceilings and they use them in shops to divide space and whatever. Apparently, there's a fairly big use for it. So, but they couldn't figure out what to do with it. And they decided the only way that they could, which basically, a long time ago, I quit using structural engineers. I started using aeronautic engineers because they're the only ones who really engineer. I mean, you know, they have to have to decide about the weight and the strength and this and that. And uh, the, there are real issues, which, you, can't, you know, you can't use the old book. And these guys kind of have an old book, and they just say it. So they decided to that they were going to have to deal with it as if they were sails, not porous, which, of course, is not true. But then the, then the issue became, well, what happens if we have a tornado, you know? We have a 250-mile-an-hour wind. So then they started trying to calculate, and they have these stones there which are oh maybe five by five and they're like eight inches thick and they're thinking well this thing this thing would maybe pull those stones right up off the ground yeah the absurdity of that so they went through all that that the machinations of that and uh, so i said you know let's just take and take a frame stretch some material on it which is one of the first things these guys here thought about doing and uh just point loaded, you know, put up 50 pounds, 60, 80, 100, 150 pounds. And then at one point, the staples all pulled out. So I said, there's your answer. There's your fail safe. You don't have to worry about whether it's, uh, you know, what the, uh, what the velocity of the wind's going to be because it's going to come out and this stuff's just going to flop around and it's not going to do anything. But they actually could, I don't know, couldn't get their heads around that. <laughs> So they, they, they said, no, we can't do it, which was really a disappointment for me because it would, it would have been good. I mean, it really, I think, it would have, in fact, it was, it was a no-brainer. But by that time, we were up to our, uh, we were already deep into this. So uh, here we are, you know, uh, having a retrospective. Well, I'm glad you brought up the paintings. So let's let's begin to go go through the different bodies of work. The first paintings in the show date to 58 and 59. They're rooted in abstract expressionism, but they're they're small, a little bit smaller than one foot square. You know, of course, Ab Abex paintings at the time tended to be enormous and macho, and and all of the things that we rightly uh, associate with Abex. The story behind how you came to make small paintings is that you were sharing a studio with Craig Kaufman. 
and you were, you know, being a big, brushy, angsty, macho abexer on one side of the room. And, well, what was Craig Kaufman doing on the other side of the room, and why or how did you happen to notice what he was up to? Well, of course, we're in the same room. Actually, the story goes back a little bit further. I had a, I had a show at a place called Felix Landau, which was a big, a big gallery at the time. I, all that's a little vague after all these years, but I had put the show up, but I, I, I do remember that, and I remember coming in and having my first, what you'd call an epiphany, and that was to say, suddenly realize, 10 minutes before the door opened, that these things are fucking bad. I mean, you know, that, that that's, that's a shock. It's like, uh, you know, it's... Whatever you're doing, however your head is, what fantasies you're having, what all the things that you think you're doing and what have you, uh, you get a good look at it. And bang, there it is. And it is bad. And then the doors open and your friends come in and say, great, you know, and which for what friends for, I guess. And uh, and I all along, I mean, like, you know, you, you don't realize, I mean, I guess some people do, that, that an exhibit is like being naked. I mean, anybody who... Who knows or has a good eye you know you're there you know to be examined and uh to to realize that it's i mean really bad i mean not a kind of bad not i mean just bad uh is it's a shock and craig kaufman had to be he's the one he was a funny guy very smart maybe the best artist of that whole ferris group in the beginning i would say probably he, he was anyway going back to my thing is Craig looked at the painting and he pulled his nose he had a way of pulling his nose like and he said you gotta be kidding I mean it's like oh shit it's like you know I mean I know that he knew something that I didn't know and they the Ferris guys other than Moses they were all younger than I was and but I I just started associating myself I mean uh, they became my second education in a way. So I tried being an abstract expressionist painter because I admired what they were doing, de Kooning the most of all, and I was trying to paint like de Kooning. I realized just how, how good he really was, you know, and uh, that I, I could never quite, I could never, not quite, I could never get to that level. And then I suddenly realized that the, it's all, all, uh, Without, without any content or intelligence or whatever, I'm realizing again how bad I was. I mean, I'm not being nice here. I mean, I was, I was, I had a, I had a magic wrist, which made me think I could be an artist. But uh, my naivety was uh, overwhelming. One of the reasons, one of my first sort of simple thing was, well, I was painting these large paintings because once the figure wasn't there, scale had become a free agent for the first time, you know, so scale, a lot of people were really exercising it. I realized that they were out of control. There was just too many things in there that were out here recording the happy accident. I mean, the worst thing, you know, the kind of things that bad painters do, hoping that something will happen and, you know, what have you. I don't know how, I, it's been a long time ago, but I guess it was like a discipline. I, I said, I'm gonna take it down to a size where I'm actually doing every single thing, and I, you know, I, in other words, there's no happy accidents, and this is, this is all uh, 
uh, you, you're responsible for it all. And so that was that was a big step. And uh, I had also had really a very interesting experience. I had a, there was another guy in the a third guy in another studio. I can't remember his name. He was he was worse painter than I was. But uh, we shared the studio, and uh, he was the guy was crazy. He'd been in the army. And he, in the process of being in the army, he had, he had all the desire to be an artist, and so he had a, a certain level of sophistication. And he he collected a half a dozen Raku bowls, Raku ware, which are unbelievable, you know, treasures. Now, no one, no one ever. I mean, they're national treasures in Japan, and nobody they don't sell them or what anything. And uh, but he, one day, asked me over to dinner. So I went over to dinner to his house, and uh, he set out two cans of Campbell's soup, pork, and beans, and a couple two spoons. And we had lint. we had dinner. Took the lid. That was that was dinner. And then afterwards, he set a box uh, on the table, and done up very simple with a with a ribbon, and the way the Japanese do. You know, they have that wonderful sense of uh, pre presentation about things. And uh, so you untie you untie the box, and you take the lid off, and inside there is a, a small soft bag, and you take it out, and it has drawstrings, and you open the drawstrings, and you reach in, and you take out this rakupo. The beauty of they've taken you, you know, going from the scale, but they just show this whole thing of you brought all the way down so that you could appreciate a thumb mark, and you, so the whole process. Coming to it, and and uh, it was a was a great education. I mean, it was obviously uh, spectacular. So coming back to see him now, I mean, I like them. They're they're nice paintings. So those foot by one foot paintings. Your original idea was that they be handheld, that the visitor pick them up, hold them, yada yada yada. That came from the Raku experience or did that come from somewhere else i think it came from the raku experience i mean there was there was a genuineness because the thing of scales i mentioned but you genuinely really started to realize the importance of scale and the uh, how one looks at it, how one in a sense approaches the opening of the thing the back i say brought you down to where the slightest mark had had a kind of meaning of its own that's a major thing to find out to know that i don't think very many people have ever had the opportunity to go through that and uh, i, I it didn't it wasn't a matter of being me being smarter it was a matter of actually me being dumber in a way and, and just finding these things uh one at a time as it were and because uh, i'd really committed myself to sort of begin at the beginning as it were when i made those little ones and using that experience as, as a kind of ground for the, for the why. So from these smaller handheld paintings, you went on to make bigger paintings, paintings such as an untitled painting that's now at the MCA San Diego, and paintings titled Ocean Park, Pier 1, and Pier 2. Those are the four that are in the show. We'll have images on manpodcast.com, and there is a fifth. I mean, there, there, there are five of, of, of this next phase of paintings in total. So these are paintings which, in hindsight, feel very much like your final way out of abex and out of expressionist painting and very much the beginning of your interest in in lines individual lines beginning to do things with individual lines that get toward perception 
is that how you can, I mean, do you consider them that way as kind of the beginning of, of an embrace of individual lines or no? Uh, you know, that, I, I'm sure that comes up when you look at them now in retrospective. But at the time, I started to engage the thing of scale again. And so the first thing I did was to just examine the the fact that we look at a painting and there's a sort of, at what distance do we look at paintings, you know, having to do with the kind of paintings, the kind of detail. And that. So I just painted a square on the wall. And and for a long enough, for, for a reasonable amount of time, moved that square back and forth in terms of scale, size, and configuration. The idea that you move it just slightly, okay, what happens, you know, and it does. There's an energy, and the thing begins to take a little bit more of a dynamic. Or there's a point where it becomes about the dynamic, and and it's not neutral enough to, you know, to to work with it. Dictates already certain kinds of approach, certain kind of materials, certain kind of gesture, and what have you. So, you know, this is all done very slow. I mean, I'm not being coy, but I was I was dumb. I mean, so I was doing it step by step, and uh, examining every part of it. I never, I was never, I guess it may becomes kind of somewhat of an intellectual inquiry of sort, although I don't think of myself as an intellect. Uh, I, I, so anyway, I established a kind of scale for myself. And uh, in the beginning, they were not abstract expressionist things, they weren't wild and gestural, but, and they were not really much, well, not necessarily about lines per se, in the beginning, not least in my mind. But I, I you know, they're, their paintings now, in which I was trying to create relationships and tensions and and a physicality about them that had a, had an authenticity, and that it had some you know that it wasn't about picture making; it was about a physical developing a kind of all these things made sense in a, in what we call a pictorial world. So, uh, as you notice, they get sparser and sparser and. Uh, that's really a matter of being maybe more effective. You know, in other words, I was able to do more with less, but also eliminating all as much all all kind, any kind of referential. In other words, you're not they're not in any way pictures, uh, even in the most general sense. And so, and the names are just bland. I mean, that Pier One I was on, I was at the at, by the beach by the pier and Pier One. Uh, you know, uh, there was a uh, uh, there was a bar around the corner called the Lucky You, and there, that we went to. And there's uh, so it was you know that kind of just it, that was just not an issue, I and mean, that was a way of dealing with it. Not as an issue. So the me the titles don't mean anything. Just just a way of keeping track, you know. And then at a at a, one point, I I was I took a trip. I'd gone back to Europe actually with Billy Albankston. And we were, we were there maybe a week, and all of a sudden I realized that uh, a lot of what was going on in those paintings was not necessary in the sense that the line, just the line, was the one thing that you can't, you, I mean, you really can't uh, turn it into a pictorial of any kind. You can't read any, I mean, everything, all these still could one read stuff into it. And the straight line, and the minute the line curves, it starts having... The ability to be read as you know a wave or a this or that, the straight line is just a straight line. It's neutral. I mean, it has none of that. And so I painted the straight line paintings because uh, 
it put me in another realm, another way of looking at things in which there was no more any kind of attempt to in any way whatsoever have a pictorial or a narrative or any of that kind of information at all. But another thing happened, which is I would paint these lines and I I had a way of moving them up and down but just by putting tape on there and holding it, just tack it and then move it. And I'd look at it for an hour, two hours, and I'd go to sleep, you know. And it's hard to explain to some of the people to say, well, what are maybe it's a little over-romantic, but Wittgenstein uh, at one time built a house for his sister, this I've read later, in Vienna. And uh, he designed the whole thing, and he had made a rather l elaborate roof or ceiling for the for the living room. And he took one look at it, supposedly, and said it's two centimeters too low. He tore it out and put it in again. And basically, that's what I learned. It, I, it, my eye had be, you know, your eye gets to a point and your ability to look and to discern that two centimeters is too low. That's a kind of, that actually is a kind of, that's maybe as sophisticated as I ever got, really, in a way. That doing those things, I, I trained my eyes, which I use all the time. It's what, it's what makes an artist an artist and what an aesthetic comes from. Uh, that kind of refining of, of your senses. I say that now afterwards. At the time, I, I couldn't have told you what, why I was doing it. That's interesting because in, in, in with the hindsight of 50, whatever it is, 60 years of history, it's easy to kind of reduce a moment to a couple of sentences. And so that moment could be reduced to abstract expressionist painting was substantially about gesture. And your way out of gesture was to focus on line. Did you realize that at the time that that was a way out? I, I, I can't claim being sophisticated anywhere along this. Other than at the end of this, I have an eye. And that what artists, the real role in a way which starts to come into my mind is that artists, in a sense, that it's that sensibility. Like the, one of the things that colored the little bit of teaching that I did at the time is I, I just assumed everybody has a sensibility. But artists, some people have a little more, they're more aware of that sensibility and it's more active for them. And they, they'll come as a student and what you're mostly doing is what most people do in a school is teach them art. You come to painting or baseball. But, but basically what I, the conclusion I come is that what you really do is nurse that sensibility. And it'll turn out ways you have no idea. So you have a, I had like Edward Shea on one end and, and Chris Burden say on the other end. It's obvious I didn't teach him. You know, I didn't, I didn't even know. In fact, in the case of Chris Burden, when he first came, I had to, the, my biggest concern was, is this guy crazy? You know, is he, I mean, is he dangerous? You know, because you got other students. I mean, he would do, he would do something like they had a, they, the, the 12 graduate students, they had their own gallery and each one took uh, a month and did their own show. And for his show, he built a small pool of water and then he put five ladders in there and had coaxed people at the, at the opening to get up on the ladders. And then he threw a 220 volt line in the water. Now I had to know, I had to know that somebody turned that thing off. <laughs> somebody in the back, you know, I had to know that. The, the school was alarmed. I mean, they were, they were, 
and they didn't want to graduate him. I finally had to, you know, really go to bat for him in the sense of the no, he's not, man. This everything he did was very carefully thought out. Everything was there was no maybe if he had him shot it was to figure out exactly the the least you know, and the shooting where the least amount of damage might be, and then to rehearse it. There was just nothing. There was the same kind of thing that the line, doing the lines were for me. I mean, everything was, you know. And so and that, that experience, also even in the teaching, was, uh, I mean, you have Larry Bell, and then you have Via uh, Selmans. I mean, just two entirely different people. I mean, and, and you don't corrupt them. I have a teaching question I want to ask later, but but while we're still on lines, as you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, you began the line paintings by painting a series of gray rectangles on your studio wall. They're marvelous Marvin Silver pictures of this in the catalog. And you were studying your perceptual awareness of that form on the wall, and you got to the point where you decided that the paintings should be 65 inches wide and 66 inches tall, one inch off square. And in the subsequent later line paintings, you went to 83 inches and 84 inches. What about that inch worked for you? And how did you, I mean, obviously by standing there and staring at it, but what was, what was it that led you to believe that that was the answer, that one inch, that that one inch was... We're going way back, but my memory of the thing is that basically... The, the the shape had no set up no demands or no expectations making it almost square but making it almost not slightly square that it, there was the thing was already energy another thing that i did which this was me coming out of my naivete the stretcher bars now i'm not i wasn't no big deal but i made the stretcher bars and they had slanted on, on the bar it was slanted so and the and the crossbars set back so that that you stretch the whole thing, and you you know you do it, and then you actually, it like it's like a drum, and so that working on it there was there was a real tactility and a real physicality, very subtle, but that this this is a piece and a part of the overall picture. The slightly one inch gives it more energy, etc. The optimum distance for the scale and all. Not a question of right or wrong. It's a question of that. That was at least my best guess as to how these things function, being neutral but not at the same time. And I started, I started doing writing at that. Some writing. I started doing some reading. I never read a book really as a kid. I was having too much fun, but I started reading philosophy and starting to, in a sense. Begin to write, which was the most difficult thing I, for me, really a stretch. Like a fielder going from left field to catch a ball and right. It was not, I, I, but I caught the ball, but it was not graceful. It was hard. Uh, again, a discipline. I had, uh, you know, I had no discipline. And so I had to parse out each of these problems and deal with them. I read ferociously. Uh, the books are hilarious. They've still got so many write, so much writing in the, on the edges and on the in the middle of it. You can't even already read them if you look at the book now. And but I wasn't thinking in any way that I was an intellectual or, or, or that I was being philosophic. But I was starting to try to address 
what all these issues were that were being raised, like I go with the thing of Wittgenstein as, a, as, a, as an example, and I started having these funny ideas about why art, you know? I mean, what, what exactly is the role of, of art and artist? In the simplest sense, first of all, I broke it down. There's two kinds of knowing, the sentient being and the cognitive self. And I can reason, but I cannot logic. I mean, reason comes from a, a different kind of activity, and it comes from me essentially working or working at my own pace, my own. I don't, I don't have the right words for it, but. And I still realized that 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 the, for me, the strength of being an artist and what artists do ultimately is they don't make paintings, they don't make pictures, they don't necessarily. They can do those things, but and I became aware of the history of modern art, which is. A radical fucking history. Yeah. You, uh, I, the, I've done this as a lecture a million times. So, but it's the easiest way to, to explain it is that you start with David, which is a brilliant example of pictorial logic. Not a great painting necessarily, but a great and incredible, you know. And then in a hundred years, all these people they took this thing completely apart, and the question becomes really obvious: Why? I mean, why in the world will we take something so beautiful and so full of, you know, richness and and, and it has a function, whatever? Why would you take it all the way, you know, just, just get, take it apart? That's the problem with the art world right now is they're not aware of their own history. And that's, that's a real problem because the history is, you know, it's like an arrow. So the arrow is what? What's, what? You know, what does the artist do? How does he function? Where are we in the world? It's not about making things and objects necessarily it's about like Wittgenstein's eye somebody really can look at things and really attend them so the idea that that our architects are, are not educated as artists they start out with the idea of design They're, you know they use design design is already in a sense a, a, a quantitative way of taking all these aesthetics and making it like a, a color wheel and and, uh, and different proportions and all that sort of, as a kind of slightly scientific or, uh, as they say, quantitative. Uh, the whole history of modern art is, is, is essentially put in the idea that there's another kind of knowing. And it's, it's not an accidental one. It has to have the kind of discipline that I've sort of been going through. That, but at the same time, you are a trained esthetician, as it were. And that, therefore, in a sense, ultimately, an artist. It was Ren Wixer came to me one time and wanted to know, wanted me to do a talk at, at he used to do these fairs in Chicago, where they'd bring in experts and what have you, and have a spend a week and have a conference on whatever subject he came up with, and so his thing was ecology that one, and I was too busy, and I said I can't make it. And he said, do you, you're not interested in ecology? I said, for Christ's sake, what the hell do you think I've been doing all my life? <laughs> you know, I mean, ecology is first an aesthetic problem. I mean, if we really love, I mean, if it really is, we really truly love it, when we put it high up in our, our decision, I mean, we're not going to do, you know, uh, economics and the politics and the whole thing, those all are processes of how we, in a sense, enact it in the world but the first thing is wanting to needing to really in a sense in a critical sense like that two centimeters counts and that all these things count so that when you start thinking it that way that being an artist is 
really an, an incredible opportunity, as it were, to, to work in the world. In reading other interviews you've done over many decades, everybody talks and asks you about these perceptual issues with the line paintings. Nobody asks you about the color and how you got to these colors. I guess the color is where and why. Trial and error. The first thing you do, like I said, about stretching the canvas, and then I would uh, put a white ground on it. And I actually, when I, when I got to the dots, which is the next step, but I realized that if, if, if you painted, if you did something like that, uh, at some point in the world, that white ground is going to turn yellow. But, I forget what, the, it's the most common one, but it, it, if you put it in sunlight, it turns white again. And I found a, a really, uh, the, apparently there's uh, Lucien Lafitte Fournay in France uh, who made paint for famous painters and that, but they apparently had the, the purest white in the world. They, I, I've never seen them make it, but it was apparently all done. They were, it was, all the ingredients were mixed in the air, like being fired out of a cannon, and that the best stuff at the end uh, became this Lucien Lafitte Fournay white. And so I painted the canvas with that with the idea that it, at some point in time when the canvas yells or the, or the colors start to uh, fade or whatever, that they you could set it in the, in the sun or in ultraviolet light and it would come, it'll go back to white again because you never would want to try and paint around, you know. But it was that, it's, that's just a sample of how, I mean, what, what the process had become in my head. And then, of course, the colors... I've bought almost all my reds from English makers, all my earth colors from a Dutch company that made them, uh, I can't remember the name now, and and uh, blues and that from different, but I sourced all the, all the best makers of color, and the color with the most pigment to it, uh, and uh, would last the longest and what have you, because these things would were become a little precarious to repair or what have you. I'm not even sure whether people do it or what they do, but so the color, as it were, starts at where it starts. It starts there, and then the blue on this on the painting you're looking at there is is come to almost the same way that the scale was come to. You try, you try this, you try that. It's all it's all trial and error, you know. I mean, you maybe maybe a little less trial and error uh, as you get better at it. But then you have to say to yourself, I don't know if I can trust that yet. So for a long while, you continue to exercise it that way. The colors are arrived at in terms that they actually, I think the only word you can use is the closest is has to do, there's an energy exchange between the surface and between the line. The painting I turned to is Crazy Auto from, from 1962. It has three light blue lines, and then above them is a darker blue or almost slatish colored line. So were you using these colors out of the tube or were you mixing and changing and testing throughout? Ultimately they they tend to mix. I mean you mix them but you could use them out of, right out of the tube and I'm not sure whether maybe I, I did it one time or another but probably not on these because I don't think it would have quite the nuance that these that these colors have. So sequentially the next thing you do are the dot paintings and I want to read a, a quote from your Archives of American Art Oral History with Matthew Sims, because I don't think we can do much better than that in terms of kind of how you got started on them. But I do have a couple of kind of specific questions that come from this quote. So here's what you, what you said in 2013 about the dot paintings. 
What I did was I put small dots on the surface, starting in the middle with full color, using the best paint you can get so that it has as much tooth as it can, um, as you can have, and it's not going to disappear for the lack of pigment in five years or 20 years or something. And I put the dot, real simple, I put the dot on, and then I put a green dot, optically corrected green dot, between every one of red so that they were perfectly on spectrum. They canceled each other out. And then you kind of de de described how you avoided patterns and such in in the dot painting so that they they were just kind of a full all-over field. So first up, has the intensity of the color held up the way you thought and hoped it would? I'm, gonna get, I'm getting a look at that right now because I haven't seen most of these paintings you know, for a good period of time. They appear to have held up reasonably well. Uh, I say that because they're optically rather difficult to look at. What you're really looking at is energy. That more and more energy was becoming why I was moving away from any kind of formal painting because uh, and energy really was that, that, that that's how the eye uh, functions that's it's it's an uh, it equates all this all this information but it's also an energy exchange that's going on not without getting technical because I'm not technical but you just realize that this is a and that's one of the reasons why I scored photography was that photography was, you know, that's the one thing it lacks, basically, is energy. It's a, a kind of dead record of, of something that was alive and had, had existed on, in another realm, really, in terms of sight. And that when you start reducing everything down here, you this becomes, you really, is the, you're dealing with the essentials now of what the whole process, the perceptual process is. You, you train yourself without necessarily knowing it uh, that certain, you know, certain things were necessary, certain relationships and all that can, you know, that function better than others and what have you. What I was trying to do here, I, first of all, I shaped the canvas. And the reason for the shape, to shape it enough so that it had an energy to it, but not enough so that you really were thinking about it as a shape canvas. And that was is somewhat difficult because if you bend a thing and hold it at one end and the other end, uh, and it's bent enough, it will, you know, it'll hold. But if you bend it just slightly, you have to realize you have to hold, hold it at every every point. So this is, I went through this whole thing of building. All these things were led to, they were doing them, but they were educational. You know, they were, I was learning how to process things. Finding a wood that was on the corner that could be sanded both directions, which is called jellyatong, that is, you know, has no grain really. So it, you, you, you can really subtle nuance of how the corners were, and then setting it out from the wall enough so that you, know, you realize that the, the idea of a of a frame. What I was really pushing hard on here is the idea of the, of the magic square. You know that it was a magic, and so you put a frame around it, or you could put it on a velvet wall, or whatever. But there was a whole idea that this was like a a, a, a space separate from and inclusive and that a mark in a sense now had a meaning and that all these meanings are added up into a picture but at the same time as in this, this, this history of modern art is reversing the whole thing so this thing basically just had a presence had an energy an exchange that you could have so everything was predicated on on that uh, these paintings were about trying to have it as close to pure energy as I could at that time. I mean, that's, there was nothing else, no other, no other meaning for it or, or 
rhyme or reason. Well, well, speaking of energy, my reaction to them whenever I've seen them is that I cannot hold still in front of them. They make me as a viewer move. Either I'm moving toward them or I'm moving away from them, but I can't hold still and look at them for more than a second or two. Was that, and you're nodding, was that part of the idea or did that just... Did you just discover that people reacted that way once they started getting to see them? People were never a part of the equation. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm people. Yeah. And so if it's starting to make sense to me and I'm getting it to it gets up on that edge, you know, where it really, where, where it's happening in a way, uh, then I figured that everybody else is going to have to, uh, they're going to have to do the dance that I did. So somewhere in here, and I'm not exactly sure when, even though I've looked for dates, you go to Spain, to the island of Ibiza. I've read the Ibiza story a bunch of times. It, it, you, you go to Ibiza, you, you had an experience with absinthe that freaked you out, and you, you left the party part of Ibiza and rented a house uh, very inexpensively for eight months on St. Anthony Bay. So I, I, th- there's a real romance to that. There's kind of a St. Jerome hermit myth the artist goes into the wilderness and comes back with ideas element to it. It's very romantic. At the risk of, of dashing romance against the rocks, what the hell did you do for eight months? Basically, I, I, for eight months, in a way, I kind of brought myself up to what we've been talking about in the paintings and that. I spent every day just walking. And, and I'd started doing that in Paris, actually. Again, I'd, just, I'd been in the Army, and, uh, you know, it's a, I'm, we have to, really, it's just a dumb kid. And I started, but I had gotten this habit of walking in Paris at night. Uh, I'd put a couple of bottles of beer in my pockets and big coat, and I'd walk all night. And it was so incredibly beautiful, you know, it was so uh, rich. It was like I'm bringing it to tears in a way. It was that rich an experience for me. And um, that was when I realized that I, I couldn't be an artist in Europe because I wouldn't change anything. You know, L.A., what was great about L.A. is everybody said, oh, L.A., especially in Oregon, L.A. is, in, is nowhere, no architecture, no, you know, no sophistication, blah, blah, blah. And they were probably right. And that's exactly why it was a pretty good place to be at, at that moment in time. On Ibiza, I carried that whole thing even further. Uh, I, I didn't carry, I didn't actually have a, I, I didn't speak Spanish, didn't learn, didn't try, just walked all day and thought about the stuff. And I, this may sound corny or unreal, but I actually started feeling like I actually had my, my my own mind in my hands in a way, and starting to feel that I I beginning to understand my biases and my uh, uh, the things that intrigued me and my sense of of, of how things felt and how things it just it, it's like after you know it, it, you. You're, if you're there long enough, it's like pulling plugs out of an old, uh, you know, in a telephone board. You pull them out, and just one at a time. Normally, you pick up a book. No, normally you go, you, you plug, you plug it in. So this whole thing was like this process. None of this in, intellectually. I'm just doing it, you know. Somehow, I don't even just pulling these plugs out. Then at a certain point, it, you have this, you have this feeling that essentially you have your own mind and in other words why do i feel this why do i think what am i responding to what do, you know why do i handle information why did i interpret this or that this way or that way you know it's 
it's hard to explain, but the isolation and slowly unplugging yourself, not not the reading book, not turning the radio on, not turning the TV, uh, that spending that time with yourself was uh, that was at the base of all this, whereas that came before all of this. Uh, uh, whatever that is, is what I was working out here in these paintings. Well, that's a good transition to the discs, I think, because it seems to me that one of the things that the dot paintings and the discs have in common is that they both have ed edges to the artworks because the laws of physics and materiality require it. There has to be, you know, as long as you have an object that's on a wall, there has to be an end to the object. Otherwise, it just goes in infinity around the planet, right? So did that physical materiality necessity of a stopping point, of an edge, come to frustrate you? Was there a tension? Because when you look at one of the discs and let your eyes glaze over, everything just dissolves into kind of magic. Was, was, was eliminating those edges motivating? It's the most crucial step of the whole thing, breaking the magic, the magic square. Essentially not, in a sense, looking at the world, objectifizing things, putting them in focus in a way. It's not about being out of focus, but, you know, I, the, when I first noticed, really, I painted the, on, the, on, the, on the dot paintings. For the first time, I got to sing, which is the middle part is there, but it's not. I, s I saw the shadow. And I was, for the first time in my life, you know, then I that was a really crucial one because Mondrian had taken it all the way up to pure energy in a way, uh, but then he went was still a painter because he didn't he didn't take the exercise of breaking the edge, the frame, which is ultimately the the the, the bottom line of two ways of knowing and two ways of going, as it were. And so that quantitatively, the the the, the shadow has no meaning. Has you can't do anything with it. Has you know, quantitatively, it doesn't really exist, and so you can ignore it i.e., you can put a frame around it. It becomes, but at the same time, if you look at the thing visually, it's full of energy. It's all kind of, you know, in other words, it's not a nothing. In fact, you realize you can't, we couldn't move in the world without it. Shadows are a crucial piece of the whole, you know, the whole process of actually organizing information in the world. So for me, that was like a break, the real breaking point, where one side is one way of, of in a sense, dealing with this phenomena and the other side of dealing with the phenomena they're both true but they become two ways of looking you know and uh, they it that it immediately changes all the rules of the game so breaking the frame was was the most crucial act of I mean, this whole thing that's the culmination of this this exercise that i went through so, so holding in our minds that idea of the edges dissolving and, and the importance of that the way I understand it, you didn't so much as intentionally decide to give up the walls. It's once you'd made that magic happen, you didn't need the walls anymore. Am I getting that about right? Yeah, it, it's, 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 it's not about walls or not walls. So the, the, these, these fluorescent tube pieces, there's one that's been at LACMA for a long time. The Met has had one installed for an extended period recently, the Albright Knox, Niagara. It strikes me that there are no hard edges in, in that work either, that, that, that the edges of those dissolve too, but in a different way. Was that 
a factor in deciding to go back to the wall and play with fluorescent tubes and gels that way, or, or am I dealing with 45-year-old ideas that you were long since done with? Since done with is the answer, but uh, and maybe even maybe even in terms of somebody's history, that may be a fuck up uh, because they bring all the the possibility of the loaded. Uh, actually, what happened was in the simplest way. I kind of discovered fluorescence for the first time because when you put them on the wall and you hide the wires and all that, uh, they're pretty pretty neutral. They're about the most neutral light. You, you, most light bulbs have uh, have a fixture always uh, to associate to it and some kind of mechanism, what have you. So I, I just filed that thing of fluorescence being, and then I found a very funny thing that nobody could make Apparently, nobody could make a, a pure daylight because one guy, a funny guy, apparently in Chicago, had the patent on it. So everybody had to make their, in a sense, they had other colors, but they had to be just one, one degree off one way or the other, which I thought was really, really kind of fascinating. So I'd always sort of kind of filed that. And at one point, I, I did it, accidentally did it, a couple of things with fluorescence and realize that there's two kinds of light that are happening which is not happening in anything else and that is that there's in the fluorescent is there's light being emitted but also the potential there's light being refracted so for example in the green painting where you have the red paint we have to have the green in there uh, I would on those tubes let's say make a good red rich red and then on the very last I put a, a green gel which modest didn't change the red really that but you, you would see green right next to associated to red pretty interesting you know pretty pretty fascinating so I I found a, a whole world of color that no one else has no one else has ever exercised and so I, I did it for a while uh, I liked it. I enjoyed it. it was re I made some. I made some of the best. I mean, uh, colors. The only where you see them maybe would be in a tapestry or in in some other uh, worldly way. But I, I actually could tease out those colors. So I, I did it for a while. But in a in a sense, actually, it was if you wanted to lay your career out in a nice chronological order, it was a mistake because it brings up all the questions. That, that you're, I went back to, you know, no, I didn't go back to. <laughs> I just found a, uh, whatever it was, like a game that was really in a world that I have played and which no one else has actually played it uh, with all the possible variations. And it was fun. You know, while, while we're talking about the, these fluorescent wall pieces, I think the first one was in 2007, the one at MCA San Diego, all the white tubes. Yeah. I am probably going to get in huge trouble for this question, but that's okay. I wonder if that piece is related to either of two things. One, the dot paintings, because when you when I stood in front of that wall in San Diego, there was a, I mean, it covered the whole damn wall and it just kept going. And, and there was a certain kind of disorientation. And then the second thing I wonder if it's related to, and this is the one that's going to get me in trouble, hatchings in Cezanne or Jasper Johns. No. 
no, there's there's no you know it. I don't think the world um, at least my world doesn't work that way. You know, it it grew out of itself. That's how. I, by the way, how why I got back to the fluorescence. They wanted me to do a, a, a show. I mean, I live in San Diego, so I all of a sudden you know they had just taken over the railroad station, the baggage train. Man, I had some big spaces all of a sudden that I had to yeah I had to deal with all these. And but what am I going to put in all these things? So they gave me a little room, which was the first studio I'd had, and so I started come up with that the idea of maybe doing that, uh, the light on the wall thing, and it came down to what you actually finally saw. Except very funny in a way, in that little room, none of the things that were interesting actually were there, until I actually got it on the big wall. One of the things was that actually when you start looking at it over a period of time, that the shadows are the most dominant thing. They actually over overpower, yeah, they just flip it over back. You think you're looking at light, and then pretty soon it's all these shadows, you know. But finally, they really, when you look at them for a little while, it's just the shadows. The lights are not are not the thing. They're this, this fun reversal of form, you know. And, and, and so that's how I got in. And then I saw the fluorescence, and then I started seeing the, because I tried some color and stuff, obviously is a possibility and then i started seeing these things the phenomena i was talking about and say my god here here's a medium that nobody has really exercised i mean flavin had in a way but he more more design in other words he made him a, a good cut in the wall or you know he kept him simple and and the colors were essentially strong and but singular as such but other than other than that, uh, yes, no game. Nobody nobody played the game, and like I say, though it was in a way, it was a total regression. I mean, I was actually it was fun. It had a whole new thing, but in terms of everything we've been doing here, it was a, a left hand turn. So in the early 1970s, that's when you start the the acrylic column pieces. Before you start them, you you go to New York. You have a show at MoMA in in, in a third floor of the twice old built you know several moments ago and and i think you know the at that time in 1970 45 years ago the new york and la art worlds were even more isolated from each other than they are now um, you hadn't met robert morris or donald judd or richard sarah they hadn't met you the only guy who maybe had a foot in both places was larry bell who at about that time so in hindsight you were working on things and ideas that were just a million miles away from what the New York art world was interested in. You told Matthew Sims that one of the things that you wanted to do when you were in New York in 1970 was meet those guys, meet Judd and meet Morris and meet Sarah. Was it curiosity or was there something you wanted to materially get out of that or learn from them? No, it was curiosity. Met Judd first. I, I, I actually, one of the columns, I, I, Pace couldn't show him. They were too tall for the gallery. So he he gave me the corner of his space on whatever street, and Spring Street, and I put a couple in the corner, and uh, met Judd, who I, who, who I liked. I mean, he's, he had a, a gruff, Billy Goat gruff sort of thing about him, but he, he was a sweetheart, and he was also really interesting. He also, <laughs> I, to thank him, I, I uh, took him to lunch. I said, I'd like to take you to lunch. So he took me over to Little Italy where they knew him in this 
place and everything, and it was great. And it was a great lunch. And then at the end of it, uh, I paid for it, and it took every cent I had. I had to go borrow money from Pace to get back to go back home. But I, you know, it was a, a very funny experience because Judd lived a, a very different way. I mean, and and he was the other thing was that he took me to a couple of sculpture mafia meetings which were this, all those other guys, you know? And they were all, pff, pff. He said, John, he said, give him a break. You know, he's okay. You know, you know he, he, was, he was very nice to me. You know what I mean? He, he, uh, uh, he said, no, 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 no. You guys are jumping to conclusions here, you know? And the, anyway, so, uh, and the rest of those guys, it was the West Coast, you know, probably, whether it was just a total dismissal, you know? But the thing was, the funny thing was, the sculptural mafia thing, is that the thing would start out, you know, arguing back and forth, but somewhat intellectually about what they're doing. And, I, and the next thing, finally at the end of it, what they were doing is trying to figure out to put the arm on some some little small town to do a project. <laughs> it disintegrated. It, it started at this level, but it disintegrated at a, at a pretty uninteresting uh, level of discussion. So, so much for them. You, you later said that a bunch of the guys were tough and mean, but nobody was as tough and mean as, as Richard Serra. You said that he was, quote, one of the meanest people in the world. What did he do that was so mean? What, 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 what was the exchange between the two of you that, that ended up in him being so mean? First of all, just start with the work where he splashed, what was it, tar or, or oh, hot, 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 hot lead onto things. He was, he was a, a, a critical. I mean, he was a tough. He was very critical of things and everybody, and no bones. You know, I mean, he he went at you if he didn't, if you challenged him on anything. So, and and then physically, he's working with huge pieces of steel and what have you. He, you know, he was he he had a rough edge on him, which is not. This is not a critique. It just is. It was everything about him has this physicality to it and this combativeness and uh, it's part of what the work actually has that kind of quality to it I mean there's other qualities to it also but it's in your face you know there's no getting around it well seeing as you brought it up uh, you brought it up. <laughs> yeah I brought it up but uh, you did a piece at MCA San Diego in 2007 that I think you also showed in New York at Pace big red yellow blue plexi panels uh, on the floor and then up above dropped from the ceiling. Is that a response or an engagement with Richard Serra's delineator? Zero. It, by the way, it went opposite. I did it in New York first and then did it. I did it out there beginning to try and fill those big spaces, you know. No, actually, I'm not even quite sure where that piece came from. Uh, you know, I, I, I look at spaces and that was a, a big empty room that I was down there on, on what was it, uh, some some one of those galleries down there was a big kind of warehouse sort of gallery. Again, it was uh, there was once in a while, uh, you know, you look at a space. This is one because it's in New York and it's pace, and I'm uh, sort of obligated to do a show. But I, I look, I, 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 it's a space that doesn't have any real personality. You know, I mean, noth there's nothing to hang your hat on, uh, nothing you know, immediately in this space even where we're here. This curve, I mean, it ends up being a, this show ends up a lot being a critique on the architecture. I mean, you could read it that way. And that final move is, to me, just, 
a no-brainer. I mean, just you square one wall, and but this, the, the, once in a while, not very often, because it's not the kind of thing that I do, you know. I, but because I, I'm, I'm having that little conversation with Arnie right now, I saw a space in L.A. that's just eccentric as hell, and I immediately coveted it. I have I, young artists sometimes ask me, you know, I'm looking for a gallery. You know, where should I look? And I say, don't don't look for a gallery. Look for a place. I mean, a place that says, wow, you know, this is my work. You know, it'll really look good. Or, but taking it further, that I can do something because that space actually has property qualities that you can really resonate when you if you, you tune them up and they'll you know just they'll do something. So uh, this, that that was uh, one of the few times that I invented something. So New York, 1970, you're there in the late summer, early fall. The MoMA show opens October of 1970. Barnett Newman had just died when, when you were in New York. Newman died in, in early July 1970. So I, I, I have to imagine that that was that there was a lot of Newman in, in, in the air at that moment. Do you remember that being there? It had nothing to do with any of that at all, but, uh, but I'll tell a couple of stories around it that are sort of fun. That Earlier than that, they did a show at Sao Paulo. All of us, a bunch of us. There was, it was uh, described as a major liner with seven tugs putting it into port, and, and which it was. Barnett Newman was a kind of a senior citizen, late in the years. The rest of them were fairly young. I mean, Don Judd, myself, uh, Larry Bell, uh, Larry Poons, I forget. Anyway, they're, they're, they did this show. And uh, actually, the show went to South America, and I had a, a one or two dot paintings in it. The first news I get, got back to me was that the, the dot paintings had been destroyed. People attacked them. They cut them with knives, they threw Coca-Cola on them, they, you know, it was just totally, uh, which for me was like, wow, I mean, that's a pretty hot response for for something that's, that's uh, you know, uh, as yeah, gentle as, as that. So anyway, the, the, so the, uh, I thought that it was really nice that, 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 that Barnett Newman was, you know, for him, he, he went, when none of us got to go to South America because he used up all the money <laughs> going back and forth. And so, but the show came back, and it came back to some place here in Washington. The National Collection of Fine Arts, the museum that is now the Smithsonian American Art Museum. It, it comes back, and uh, so I come to New York to install my, my, my contribution, which I have to bring a new painting. And also I'm finding out that they didn't insure it. So the works were just destroyed, period, you know. And it did a lot of work in, in those things, you know. So to have two of them destroyed was to take about 20% of the whole, I think, or maybe 10 uh, in the beginning. But anyway, so I come, and uh, I, the show is completely hung. And I'm not in the show, and Larry Bell's not in the show, and um, Don Judd's not in the show. Uh, I forget, there might have been another person, but somebody, this guy who was the curator there had hung the show and so I came and I, I asked him I said you know what this seems a little odd and he said and I was not in the show so he said well you know uh, 
uh, well, you have a contract. Everybody had a contract, and it's not in your contract that I have to sh do this thing. And I said, I don't think so. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I didn't sign any contract. He said, oh, yes, you did. And he ran upstairs and he came down. I hadn't signed it. <laughs> and so he said, well, what do you want? I said, I want everybody back in the show. And anyway, so he says, oh, well, uh, but but basically I had I was in a position to, to demand it. And so I said, put it, okay. So then he, gives, he, he, he put everybody back. And he gave me this room out of spite, kind of. It was a room, a small room with a, 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 a dado all the way around it of uh, marble with a, um, a little raised thing at the top. And so I hang the dot painting and it looks like it's skewered, you know, it's like on a spit. And I'm thinking, oh man, you know. So I, 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 so I end up, what I did is I did a reverse trompe Okay, and I painted the wall uh, and, and made the whole thing go away. But the fun part of the story for me was I'm laying there underneath it, painting this thing out, and they bring a, a New York critic in. They say, well, here's so-and-so, you know, and the guy sits down on the bench, and I'm talking to him, but I'm still painting away, and he's asking me questions and this and that. And they, finally, he says, I have to catch a train back to New York, and, uh, you know, show me the work. I said, you've been, you've been looking at it the whole time. <laughs> it was Hilton Kramer. Oh, you gotta agree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, I was I mean, I think. Anyway, and this other guy suddenly, I mean, suddenly he loves what I'm doing. Not, he loved the fact that I did this trompe l'oeil in reverse, where I made something disappear, you know, that was there. So it was actually a very, actually entertaining little uh, episode. Turning towards Scrim, the first time you were on the show, we talked about Scrim a great deal. So, so we're talking a little less about it today. And I want to preface our conversation about the Scrim piece here at the Hirshhorn and the the, the major thing you're doing for Chinati out in Marfa by saying that I'm going to try to avoid giving away either piece. I think it really. I, I think I think people will come here and see it, come to the Hirshhorn and see it, and I don't want to tell them what's there you i mean the experience i had when i first saw it was i walked into an empty room nobody told me where it was or what it was or anything and figuring that out is a physically meaningful experience and i don't want to take that away from anybody let's talk about the chinati project first it opens in july july 23rd as of as of when we're taping here the last time i saw what we saw what it was going to be was at the old hospital the old falling apart decrepit hospital you started making drawings for the work in in 2012 and now a, a new structure is being built for it you started making drawings in 2002 it's 14 years on from 2002 has the piece changed now that you have moved on from a different building into a purpose-built building you know yes and no the thing is first of all you said it's been like 14 or 15 years uh, you know, doing these, doing these, doing these kind of projects, the thing that you, have, you realize, and there was getting the chance to do the garden, or uh, what, is there are not many. There are there are difficult, and there are not very many opportunities out there. There really aren't. It's a, a, for a young person who, who I think, could possibly try and approach the art world this way. It's not. It's a tough, tough road to hoe. 
I, I, one time I, I was asked to come to the Miami International Airport, and the, the director of the airport said, no, we don't need you, and the arts people had a, a budget and a mandate to enter in the airport. And so I was brought there originally to do something, but then there was nothing, and so everybody else quit. But I, you know, I'm not to be easily dissuaded. It was a great opportunity for me. Uh, even if I never got any made, it was a chance to exercise, play my game, you know what I mean? And so I spent, I don't know, I don't know how long, but a, a good period of time, like a year, year and a half or two, and just hung in there, you know, and made all kinds of plans and ideas. I mean, I analyzed and re-felt, rethought. In a way, I took my Ph.D. at the Miami International Airport, uh, knowing, knowing I was never going to get anything but done. But you don't, you know, to do this, you got to have an opportunity to do it. But the, but the thing is, is uh, so the Miami International Airport. They, you know, I sat at the table with these guys when they debated all. The, it had, it was a disaster. They had an article in the paper, literally seven days a week, about all the problems at the airport in terms of getting lost and how you where to park your car and how to get in there, and so I basically analyzed the whole situation. Uh, looked at everything they'd done. For example, a real simple thing, and, and just the first critique, they said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, there have been a few bad decisions made here. <laughs> and and they said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, think you're, you're a guy in a rented car, and you're coming to the airport, and at this airport, you're coming down whatever the street is, or the road, and you look over to your left, and you're, oh, there's the airport. But but the but the sign says airport. It's to the right. So and you're already in a rented car. So you're on alert, and you're going to so go go right, following the sign. And right there, you put the you put the thing, the ceremony thing called flight, the piece of art. I said nobody in the world is going to be able to appreciate or even look at flight. You know this is I mean this is an absurd position to put this thing in. Because, uh, okay, now you're this guy, he's going up this way, and there's five beautiful trees. This was, this is, I said, these are incredibly beautiful trees. But for me, it's a problem because actually it hides the fact that the road finally turns and goes to the airport. Wrong place for the trees. Now you're, now you're on a, a straightaway. And for a moment, there was no decision you have to make. Opportunity, you know? And so I just went through the airport step by step by step by step explaining how decisions were made and how they in a sense contradicted not only the aesthetics of it but but the the, the how do people get from one place to another uh there was great confusion about how you know which concourse you were supposed to go to uh you were relying on a b c that's it you know people lost their cars in the in the garages we we had to go through the whole thing of how one finds a car and what do you use? Is color an item? Or if some people read things, is is it associated to symbols or signs? There was how many? How do we? Anyway, it was fun. I, I was really, uh, and I come. I got actually pretty close to it. At one point, finally, right near the end, he had he had paid an art. He always used architects, of course, but the guy's name was Dick Judy, and he ran. He was the airport association's president. Guy, smart guy, and he really did some, he ran a, on the plane side, he ran a real efficient airport. 
he had a lot of problems that were inherited. The building was, was built over a period of time, so it didn't have any, it had a very great difficulty in terms of how it read as a whole as a, and how one navigated that thing. So I, I was, I finally, he really started, he asked these, uh, his good architect, they had a lighting problem for the lower uh, entrance exits of the uh, circle. So the guy spent like literally like nine months, came up, cost him X amount of dollars, and they installed it and it didn't work. It was okay, but didn't really work. So then he got another guy to come, and he, this guy spent three months or four months, and finally it didn't work really. And so with so with smart-ass me, I said, look, man, I will do this for you, and I will do it in a week, and I will do it for free. I will give you a, a lighting solution for that lower level, which I did. And he said, at that point, suddenly you got to take me serious. <laughs> you know, which I, I never I'd finally demonstrated what I had been talking about for a long time. Unfortunate thing was, it was at that moment in time, the influx of the Cuban migration, they basically had settled in, a lot of people had settled in Miami. And so there was white flight. Everybody went to the suburbs, as it were, and left the town town to, uh, to, to be, you know, really, the Cubans, by the way, are, are terrific. They have a real wonderful uh, style of life. And so it was a very interesting place, uh, I thought. They, but they got the first Cuban mayor. First thing he did, of course, was to look at the economics of the whole city, and every agency in the city was losing money except one, which was the airport. Mm. This guy, Dick Judy, had never played the game with him. He, he, he floated all of his own bonds, did all of his own construction, you know, and he was, he, he was, he was he making money. It was a good, successful working airport, um, a, a mess, you know, a mess. I mean, if you, you could be in Cleveland when you landed, you had no idea where you were. But anyway, at that point, the, the mayor said the obvious thing, from now on, everything at the airport goes through me. And the, the, I mean, Dick Judy just said, I quit, you know. And that was the end of my project. Because the second guy took his place, looked at me at the table purposely, and he said, I'll concrete the whole fucking thing over. Let me wander back to, to Marfa and, and the Hirshhorn Scrim. You know, one of the light in Marfa has a particular intense, crazy high desert mountain intense quality to it. Whereas the light in the Hirshhorn galleries only enters through a doorway. How much when you do a scrim piece, do you think about light and light quality and what to do with light? I mean, intensely. I'm, I, I, when, when I'm in this situation, I'm looking for help. I'm looking for, th for the dynamics of how you enter, where you enter from, what kind of things have been going on before you got there. What are the opportunities? What is this thing? How does it act or interact with the space before it and the space after it? Because I'm looking for things that are going to be that are going to resonate in that space that you're going to have a you know, a feel for that are have a an edge on them that'll bring you you know bring you for a moment to have to be a firsthand observer to pay attention in the simplest sense. So light, of course, is 
a major tool, uh, how you move through it, where you come from, where you go to afterwards, so on and so forth. All of those are factors. Materials, how the materials are, obviously scale, all, all the things that we know that an artist essentially is supposed to be trained to, to be uh, in tune with, as it were. Like I said earlier about telling a young artist, don't look for a gallery, look for a space. Some place where the, where your work you know resonates, or where there's an opportunity for your work, you know, to do the kind of thing you do, which may have to do with whether it has windows or doesn't have windows, or whether there's traffic on the street, or whether uh, the time of day, which way the sun comes, is it blocked by a building? Is it blocked all the time? Is there intermittent light and so on and so forth? These are all. This is what your what your this is your palette, and every bit of it, in a sense, has a, a potential. So when you're using Scrim, what do you have to do differently in a dark space like the Hirshhorn Galleries and in a super bright space like Chinati? What is the difference for you? It maybe works in one place and doesn't work in the other. <laughs> I'd like to have 10 different Scrims. I mean, the Scrim was, in a way, it's in the, being in the art world, it's a, it's there are, most of the conditions are fairly well set so the obvious things that you, the scrim if i could have a it's like somebody wanting to have a magic hook that just so you make something happen and it floats in the air you know uh, the scrim's a good tool i wish i had more of them uh, so the thing has become a little bit over identified with the scrim because it works it works in a lot of places and the difference between a dark room and a light room uh, depends on a lot of factors. I mean, it can't be without some light, so we have to deal with what the light is. Can you, if it's not daylight, then it's. What can I deal with? Uh, the you know the what kind of incandescent light that you have in this place? Whether I can get it, or maybe lights uh, not an issue, and then maybe I can't use the scrim. You know, it's a. It has some limitations, but it has the ability to affect a large space without hardly, in a sense, in any way, being objective or having an object quality about it. Not very many things like that. Now, I used a thing outside, a fence material in some projects I did, which has a small, yeah, small aperture, any color you want it, lasts forever, color does. It was called non-climbable fence, and originally was about being in prison because it had a small enough aperture that you can't climb it. Can't, you can climb a regular old one. So that was its original orientation. But it turns out that you can cut it like butter, you know. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. So it's it's how these projects, you know, all these things factor in. And sometimes they're interesting. Sometimes they're information. Sometimes they, you know, you think you got an idea and you haven't got an idea. But uh, the scrim is, is, in a way, if you want to look at it from a, you know, from a, a uh, critical point of view, uh, I, I'm in a sense I've overused it, uh, you know. I, but it's I'd like to have ten scrims, you know. It still works for me, Robert Irwin. It's been a pleasure and an absolute joy to talk with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.